But again, we didn't come from nothing, and no scientist believes that we ever came from absolutely nothing. The Big Bang is not something from nothing. Do you want to see a magic trick? Before the Big Bang, there was nothing. You are telling us that matter arose spontaneously out of nothing. Literally nothing. Nothing. Literally nothing. Nothing. Literally nothing. Literally nothing. Literally nothing. And then something happened. The Big Bang wasn't really an explosion in the triggering the most colossal explosion in history. In a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second, the universe grew from the size of that tiny point to something billions of miles across. This colossal blast created the everything. Big Bang is All not something from nothing. Literally nothing. About 13.7 billion years ago, this tiny singularity violently exploded. And it is from this explosion, this bang, that all matter, energy, space, and time were created. No explosion, no bang, just expansion. This tiny singularity violently exploded. No explosion, no bang, just expansion. Before the Big Bang, there was nothing, literally nothing. And then something happened, triggering the most colossal explosion in history. We don't necessarily think it was nothing before that. You are telling us that matter arose spontaneously out of nothing. Literally nothing. Nothing. Literally nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Literally nothing. Nothing. I think common ancestry is true. I think animals have common ancestry. I think evolution happened. I think that I'm related to a dog. I think I'm related to X fruit, X animal there. So you don't have to ask. That's right, that's right. You're right. Relax. Well, how are you, Mr. Proverbs? I'm doing fantastic there, good buddy. I gotta say, I really love the updated intro. Yeah, I hear you. It looks like we've got somebody down below. Let's see what they're up to. Uh, there we go. What, don't know you very well. Want to make sure I don't get porn bombed or something evil happen. How you doing, Mr. Grayson? Uh, hey there. You actually commented on my channel earlier today saying uh, that you'd be having this live and you asked uh, to see what I'm made of. So I figured that you wanted to have this discussion. Oh, yeah. You had done a video with uh, uh, Ken Tovin, I guess, on the Standing for Truth channel. Yep, totally beat him in a debate twice. 
Well, how do you feel you beat him in a debate? I showed that all of his positions were untenable. He had no response to my criticisms, and I explained all of his problems that he tries to point out. So you were able to prove uh, without a doubt that evolution is real? Yes. Okay. Well, then, can you define what abiogenesis says? Life from non-life. Non from, life from non-life. You believe that's possible? Yeah. You've observed this? Nope. How is that evidence, and if you haven't actually observed it? You don't have to observe something directly to prove that it happened. Okay, hold on one second. Let me put this on the screen right here. You don't have to observe it in order to know something happened. Okay, so yeah. what is the evidence that life came from non-life? Well, we know that at one point in the past, um, there was no life, and we know now there is life. So therefore, at some point, life had to have come from non-life. Since life wasn't back in the past, that must mean that it came from nothing. That's no, interesting. Well, that's not what I said, is it? Well, explain it. Elaborate, please. We're listening. Okay, so we know for a fact that in the past, there was no life, right? We can look at the cosmic microwave background. We can see that the universe was way too high in energy for even atoms to be formed. So we know there's no life. We look around now, we see that there is life. Therefore, at some point, whether directed by a god or not, we know that life had to have come from non-life, not from nothing, like you just said. Oh, so you are open to the possibility of God. God fits into this view. Sure, it can. I mean, personally, I'm an atheist, but I don't think that you know evolution or abiogenesis disproves a god. So why do you believe that God is an option in this for? That's interesting. Why do I believe it's an option? Yeah. I mean, usually some atheists are just like, nah, I'm not going to go with that. I'm going to go with all natural processes. But you sound like you actually leave, leave open the possibility. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I wouldn't deny the possibility. I mean, we can only make, you know, pro positive claims. I can't prove a negative like God doesn't exist or something. Um, I just lack a belief in a God. So that's what I would consider making me an atheist. But I don't rule out the possibility. Well, you agree that there's got to be some reasons why you would say that. If I were to say right now that a leprechaun uh, opened up a box of Lucky Charms and made the mm -hmm. universe, you'd say, hell no, that's ridiculous. But you're open to a concept of God. Why is that? Well, I'm open to the possibility of both. I mean, I would consider them both kind of on equal you know, footing. They're both supernatural <laughs> concepts, basically. I mean, a, a leprechaun could have farted out the universe, and that's could have that could have been how it happened. I don't know, but I don't necessarily believe that that's how it happened. That's why I lack a belief in a farting leprechaun, just like I lack a belief in a in a god in creationism. So you believe that the concept of God is comparable to leprechauns? They're both supernatural. Do you believe that the Big Bang is supernatural? No. What do you, if you wouldn't mind, how would you define or explain the Big Bang? Uh, it would be an expansion of space and time. What about nature itself? What about nature itself? Well, you believe, if you've seen the two clips at the very beginning, I've seen you at the bottom of the yep. panel, it said that matter, the physical reality of nature itself, came into existence from a singularity. Do you believe that? Mm, no, I don't think that many physicists would believe that. Uh, I think that the, the singularity is a mathematical concept that is not 
but it's not something that we have the math or physics to actually describe in real life. So the singularity isn't a thing that people are positing actually existed. It's just showing that our math breaks down at that point and we don't have the physics to explain what was really going on. But you believe that everything came from like something the size of a pin needle, right? Uh, yeah, significantly smaller and higher in energy density. I think that that's what the evidence shows us. Just to make sure we're on the same page, you believe that all the material that exists on Earth and mm -hmm. the universe came mm -hmm. from that singularity, right? Well, no, I don't know about a singularity like we just went over. The singularity is just an, a mathematical artifact. But I do believe that the universe was once in a higher energy density state. So it the space and time would have been much smaller than it is today. But I'm, I'm not willing to go back to a singularity because our mathematics is only good for like, you know, ten, the first 10 to the minus 33 seconds or something like that. So we don't have anything to describe what happened before then. How did we come up with the laws of nature, according to you? Uh, through empirical observation. We tested to see if these, you know, mathematical axioms actually, like, were true. And they hold up whenever we test them. They seem to be invariant across space and time. You believe that space and time and nature itself had a beginning? Um... I guess it would just depend on what you uh, mean. I mean, do you, if you're talking about the local space and time of the universe, then yes. Um, but, it, you know, I have no idea about multiverses. I mean, there's no evidence one way or another. So that's another possibility that I cannot rule out. And then nature is a little bit too ambiguous for me to know what you're talking about. If you're just talking about like the sum of all the energy in the universe and you're calling that nature, um, I, I, don't, I just don't know what you mean. Well, I'm talking about the all the physical material and content that we have in the universe. They say that we have over 10 trillion planets that exist as well as all about, like energy. Well, if you want to call it energy, that's fine. But you well, do believe all time, this like had to be If you were crushing right? everything down, right, to a very small amount of space, you would have so much energy density that you wouldn't physically be able to have atoms or matter. So it would all be energy by e equals mc squared. Okay. Well, the, the thing that you're bringing up Albert Einstein here with that, and Albert Einstein stated that the universe, everything from matter to time and space had a beginning. It was actually a Catholic priest who came up with the yeah, concept of the Big Bang. So if this is true, then this would mean that at some point in all this, and we can't really designate a time because time didn't exist yet, wouldn't that mean that also nature had a beginning along with time and space? So what you're referring to is like T equals zero, like the very beginning of time, which again, we don't have physics or mathematics to describe. So we can only describe like after the first few fractions of a, of a microsecond, like after that point. So if you, there really are no claims about anything that happened before that point in the realm of science. I mean, everything talking about that point, like before, like the T equals zero or very close to it, all of that is going to be speculation. We don't have any evidence or mathematics to say one way or another at the moment. And then, like I said earlier, the, the multiverse kind of is a whole other possibility that would change the answer to those questions as well. But you don't believe that we actually have any evidence for a multiverse. It's just something we find fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, we could talk about my own personal like 
things I like the way I like to think about it, but I'm not claiming that I have a positive belief that that's the way it truly is because like you just said that, that there's not evidence at the moment. I have no hatred or uh, discrepancy against the multiverse. I believe if obviously if God is real, he can create as many universes as he wants. It's also going to maybe just dis be disagreeable with other Christians, but I'm open to it. The reason why I ask you all these weird questions is this. How would you define supernatural? Let's make sure we're on the same wavelength on that. I mean, a supernatural process would just be any process that is not a natural process. So, like, you know, the, a natural process involves... I mean, I, I assume that these were kind of terms that we both would know that what we're talking about when we when we say these words. Well, Grayson, unfortunately, I've done many, many live shows. I've had a lot of atheists come on and... I don't want to believe that every single one of them think exactly the same, which they've proved they don't. Some of them have a weird definition of supernatural. Some of them will say things like Santa Claus or in a cloud type of thing. I figured you'd probably have your own opinion and view on it. I actually agree with your definition of supernatural, though. You're stating something that exists beyond the laws of nature. Well, if the universe did have a beginning and nature came into existence along with time and space, that would mean necessarily that the laws of nature didn't exist before nature, obviously. Mm, yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily agree with the logic of that, um, because just for instance, like um, in the in the multiversal conception that I like to think about, and of course, we'll know more evidence about this once we can observe black holes directly. But if a black hole is basically a universe creating like a phenomenon, right? If there's a universe within every black hole, um, then there wouldn't necessarily be like, you would still have these, these causes that are outside of that individual universe, but they'd be in our universe and the, the black hole would be the result and it would have its own local space and time and energy, just like our universe. I hear you on that. You are familiar with Lawrence Cross, Richard yes. Dawkins, some of these atheist scientists. They're saying for, I'll, I'll give you an example of something here. That way you know that I'm not the one coming up with this. Well, I, I know that know. Lawrence Krauss likes to say that the universe came from nothing. We get something from nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with his um, lines on that. All right. Let me see. Okay. All right. Well, well, I mean, I know what he points to as the evidence as, you know, saying that like uh, you have these virtual particles that are popping into and out of existence all the time out of nothing um, in like quantum mechanics. So I know like what he's pointing on to to try to justify that. But again, ultimately, what he's saying there about the universe coming from nothing is something that he does not have a mathematical model to describe. Right. There's no you know, we don't have anything to describe the very, very first moments of the universe. Lawrence Krauss doesn't have that either. I mean, he's just, you know, he's selling books. I mean, it's he has a motive to sell books saying that the universe came from nothing is a great way to move books off the shelves. Same thing with these like National Geographic shows that you're showing in the beginning. I mean, they're trying to engage with their audience. They're trying to and those are also science journalists. I don't know how much they're consulting with actual physicists for that, but. I mean, they're just trying to, you know, it's it's to the lay population. It's meant to sound provocative and 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 get viewership. So you believe that these guys, uh, now being a non-believer yourself, you sound like you're kind of throwing these guys under the bus, and I respect that if that's where you're going with it. But you're saying they just say these things out in front of the public mm -hmm. just to be provocative and to sell a book? 
Yeah, I mean, Lawrence Krauss has not published any scientific paper sh describing how the universe could come out of nothing, or he's not, you know, he, he hasn't published any scientific literature on this. He's just been publishing, you know, for the lay audience, uh, his, his books that can go to Barnes and Noble and just anybody can pick up and read. So if he actually had any sort of, you know, model that was outside the Lambda CDM model, which is our current cosmological model for the universe um, which doesn't start at a singularity right i mean it starts after that point so if he's claiming to have any kind of you know model or math or anything that can go before that point he has yet to demonstrate that in any kind of scientifically uh, valid way well i agree with you on that goodness gracious grayson uh, you seem like a very uh Seem like an on-the-ball uh, atheist. We get a lot in here that don't even know what the big universe is, and you seem yeah. like you've actually done some research. So you you find this stuff you're you're interested, but you find that it's more about a, a public image or just selling books than actual information. Yeah, I mean, if I was trying to actually learn about the subject, I might pick up like a like a scientific review article or something that's published in an actual journal. I wouldn't probably pick up like just a, a random book that's written by some of these guys for the public because they're going to say stuff that is like you know to sound poetic or to make this kind of dense mathematics interesting and digestible to the average person so they're going to kind of simplify things or they're going to sensationalize something um so i just wouldn't be treating that as like a, if i wanted to actually learn about these subjects i would actually like read the scientific literature i wouldn't read like you know, I wouldn't watch a National Geographic documentary, I'll tell you that. A Proverbs guy, how do you feel about this? We've had so many atheists come in and say there's an overabundance of evidence that we'd have to be absolutely stupid not to believe what Lawrence Cross is talking about. And Grayson, within three minutes, just absolutely mowed these guys over like grass. How do you feel about that? I'll be honest with you. I am actually very shocked, but I'm also very impressed. And Grayson, thank you very much for your honesty. It's not a lot of atheists that come on here and are willing to bite that bullet and admit that we don't have all the answers for evolution. So I really do appreciate that. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, sir, but it, it sounded to me like you are pretty much on the fence, but leaning towards evolution of whether our origins would be supernatural through God or supernatural through a Big Bang. Is that correct? Um, well, obviously, I would not be using the word evolution to describe any of these things. I mean, you know, I mean, I think you know what I'm going to say. Evolution is like the origin of biodiversity and species. It has nothing to do with the origin of the universe. But if you're saying if you're asking how I feel about the actual start of the universe, like the you know cosmology and origins in that regard. Um, no, I would still pretty much lean pretty strongly toward the Lambda CDM model, but I just acknowledge the fact that it doesn't have all the answers and it doesn't describe anything for the first couple microseconds of the universe. There's literally, there's no claim that's made. Um, so, you know, you just kind of have to say you don't know when it's not known at the, at the moment. So I have no problem with admitting unknowns. So you don't know what caused the Big Bang? I'm not even sure if that question makes sense to ask, but I'll just say no. I, I don't know what caused Why it. wouldn't that question make sense to ask? Like with because, the origins of creation from a Christian's perspective, yeah. I know our origins. It so, all started with God saying, let there be light. So but with evolution, why. I'm sorry, with 
with the Big Bang, we have no explanation for the why. There's no oh. why answered, no what, and no where. And those well, are three fundamental explain. questions. So let me just explain why it, two of those questions, at least, don't, don't make sense. Um, is that if the Big Bang, right, if the start of all this was the origin of space and time, then it makes no sense to ask what was before the origin of time. Right. Because there would be no my before. question. What wasn't what was before it? My question is what caused it. Right. But for something to cause it, it has to come in a chronological sequence before it. There's no. So by that theory, it. though, nothing could have caused it. So it's an impossibility from the get go. Do you realize what you just did? No, <laughs> because the, the thing is, is the universe has its own local space and time, right? There are non-local space and times that are possible, right? We don't have evidence for them. This would be part of a multiverse, but that doesn't mean that we have excluded their possibility. So there are possibly other like causes outside of our universe that would be in a different space and time other than our own universes. So there are like completely logical and consistent ways um, of thinking about these kinds of things. But like I said, I mean, we don't even know if the the origin of the universe was the origin of our local space and time. Again, the theory doesn't say anything about those first few instances. So, and you do believe that the Big Bang is the absolute start of all life on on Earth as well as in the universe, correct? No. So life did started way after the Big Bang. So there was no life for like you know. <laughs> What was what was the first idea. life? Huh? Well, with the theory of evolution, with the origins of our species, with the origins of all living things, what was the first life? I mean, I think that you kind of have like a bit of like a gradient there. Like if you're asking about abiogenesis, how do we get from chemicals to chemical systems to eventually the first cell? You're not directly answering any of these questions, though. I find that a little I, long. I'm trying to. I mean, I was in the middle of a sentence. Um but what I was saying is that there's a definite, uh, there's a gradation. So I'm not saying that there's a point where you can say, oh, here's the definitive point of the first life, because what bef came before that would be a gray area. And like, there's a ton of gray areas. It's not like you all of a sudden have an absolute point where you have no life. And then all of a sudden, at the same time, you have life. It would be like a large gray area in between and during a process. And see, that's the thing that I don't understand, because with the Christian perspective, we have the Bible. So we have the cause of what started all life. We have the how of what started all life. But with your belief, you don't have any of those answers. And yeah, I, I think, think that's why Brett and I believe that it is a belief and it's not science. Yeah. So like I said, I think it's totally OK not to have all the answers. I mean, I think like oftentimes it's the most intellectual, intellectually honest thing to admit when you don't have all the answers. So I'm not claiming that to know the answers to all these things. But if I can just make it a, a metaphor for what I was just talking about um, with like the evolution of new languages. Right. So with the evolution of like the Spanish language, there was no first person to speak Spanish. It's not like all of a sudden two non-Spanish speakers gave birth to a Spanish speaking like children. That's not how this works. It's like every generation was a little bit closer to Spanish than the generation before. Like every iteration was a little bit closer to what we might consider life than the iteration before. So it's it, these things are not all of a sudden like zero to 100. Well, Mr. Proverbs guy, just to say something real quick, and I don't know if Grayson's aware of this. I don't know how many discussions you've had the opportunity to have with theists, but 
Um, usually it appears as when talking to non-believers, they usually start the evolutionary process shortly uh, right into the transition of abiogenesis from that point on. But Christians, especially guys like Kent Hovind, myself, Proverbs, we look at evolution, we usually go all the way towards the Big Bang, and I know that the surprise is non-believers and they don't understand it, but we feel like that that's where everything started. And if it wasn't for all that, then abiogenesis, evolution, that theory or ideas wouldn't even mean anything in the first place. So we're counting cosmological evolution, abiogenesis, evolution, genetic evolution, all that together. Does that make sense? I know the general framework that you guys are working on. I just have to, you know, obviously, like my position is that these are totally like different theories. Like I would liken it to, you know, Carl Sagan's famous quote about, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. That's like saying I have this apple pie recipe and you're saying, wait, but it doesn't start at the Big Bang. So this apple pie recipe is useless. It's meaningless. You don't explain where any of these ingredients originally originated from with their atoms. So that's what I would kind of liken it uh, to in this case is like you can talk about the apple pie recipe without talking about the Big Bang. But I'm again, I'm open to talking about evolution, abiogenesis, Big Bang. I love all of these fields, but. I just recognize that they are fundamentally different fields of science. They're different theories. I'm going to let Proverbs do some more questions for you, but I want to throw one more thing out there. Um, we were talking earlier. Would you agree, even though you think Lawrence Cross and a lot of these guys who talk about the Big Bang are selling books, would you agree that if there was any truth to what they were saying, that all space, time, and matter came from nothing, that would, by definition, as you put forth, be supernatural. Mm, no, I don't think so necessarily. I mean, um, because, I mean, what we do see with like virtual particles is we do see particles that are forming out of what seems to be nothing just from the vacuum density. And that's not a supernatural event. So you believe, you're saying um, that we have the ability to uh, observe something that supposedly happened between 13 and 16 billion years ago. Yes, we observe the cosmic microwave background. And you say that we're seeing originally what was going on back then, right now. Shortly afterwards, it's kind of like the smoking gun, you know, we're not observing the actual bullet shot, but we're observing the smoking gun right afterwards, yeah. Sometimes it ain't smoke from a gun. Sometimes it's smoke from a chimney. But go ahead, Proverbs. Okay. And thank you for being so honest and forthcoming with our questions. I really do appreciate it. My next question for you would be, you did seem like you were somewhat open to the possibility of a god. So I'm just wondering, if you are open to that possibility, why you lean towards scientific journals that have no explanation for our exact beginning, or even things like where the Spanish language came from, but you have the Bible that tells you exactly the origins of our beginning, the exact origins of the first people on earth, exact location of those people, as well as the, the foundation of all languages at the Tower of Babel. Uh, well, because science and scientific theories have like they're supported by evidence. Um, and whenever I, you know, have read the Bible, I mean, it, I, I see the claims that you're talking about, but I just don't oh, see enough evidence that would personally make me want to believe. And then I can also see other religions that also make claims of a similar variety. So 
I don't really see any evidence for them either. Um, well, there's the countless locations that are depicted only in the Holy Scriptures, where we've now unearthed multiple locations in the past 10 years. Sodom and Gomorrah is a location that we found that was only mentioned in Scriptures. The Hittite people are a people that were only mentioned in Scriptures, but now we've actually found Hittite empires. Yeah, so the Hittite people are not only mentioned by the scriptures. They're, the Hittite, I mean, you can find direct correspondences between the Egyptian pharaoh and the Hittite kings in the Amarna letter. Right, but those are relatively recent discoveries. Um, okay, but they're still from old documents. I mean, we have lots of our Right, but those old documents but, were just located not uh, very let me long ago. the actual substance of your point here where, like, I, I'm not... I'm not saying that like the old Testament was just completely made up. It's obviously coming from a backdrop and a very long history of like religions and mythology and all kinds of context from Mesopotamia, Egypt and Canaan. So it would make sense to me if it was kind of describing actual cultural memories, kind of like how um, the Iliad, right. With Achilles. And like, this is a grand mythological tale. I don't think anyone actually believes in the things that happened in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And yet we found centuries later, we found the actual city of Troy. And we found that a lot of historical details in the Iliad were based on real history. Like it was written in the iron age, but it describes a kind of iron, like or the kind of armor that was worn in the bronze age among the Greeks. So it gets historical things right as well. And it describes locations that turned out to be real locations as well. That doesn't mean I have to believe in, you know, Achilles and he was immortal except for his heel. Do you believe and are you aware of Leguinzic DNA? Leguinzic DNA? I have not heard the term. Okay, so that is the DNA that everybody speaks. It's a specific DNA trait, a specific trait to a certain person's speech that is uninterchangeable. It cannot be switched between people. The way you speak is completely different from the way I speak. And we have proven that that Leguinzic DNA also applies to the scriptures all the way from Genesis to Revelation. How does DNA possibly pertain Leguinzic to DNA. Okay, so how I just that... explained it. It's, it's speech pattern. It's specific speech, way of speaking that is individual from you and me. So but wait, 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 if the scripture was not written... Something? Are you actually talking about DNA or is this just like like dna or is, it's are we like about dna the, the DNA? term is called leguinzic dna so is it just it, leguinzic dna is just talking about like patterns of speaking like correct okay so it's just saying that what like one person write the wrote the bible or something what do you it's saying that it proves the entire scripture is inspired by the holy spirit otherwise being written over thousands of years apart it could not have shared this leguinzic dna um, I'll look more into this concept, but from my own readings, I've come across the documentarian uh, hypothesis about, you know, the P source, the J source, and the, 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 the Y source, like different authors of the Old Testament and the Bible that have sort of like, each have their own unique authorial style. And like the biblical scholars have been able to separate the Bible out into its multiple authors. So I've actually seen you know, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about. I'll look into it, but I've seen like analyses that run directly contrary. Okay. Yeah. Maybe after you check that out, you could come back on and we could have a good back and forth about it. Uh, I'm Brett, honestly, you I'm not the most knowledgeable about the Bible. I'll just say, usually I like discussing the kind of like the science and I don't really have that much knowledge of uh, the scriptures. Fair well, enough. It, it, 
Yeah, if you don't mind me asking, like, out of total respect, if you aren't positive that our origins would come from the Big Bang, and you're open to somewhat of a possibility of God, why wouldn't you investigate more into the scriptures to check out its validity? Honest question. Yeah, I don't. I guess I just don't feel any need or interest. I mean, um, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll look at, you know, how ancient Egyptian religion thought about the origin of the universe or how Hindus perceive it. And just, I mean, I'll be interested. I mean, I've, I'm, I have a somewhat familiar understanding of the Old Testament, but um, it's nothing. And I, I really, I don't think that the possibility is really that big to where, um, yeah, I really feel that much. I, I kind of, I just lean much more towards the science, I guess. I don't really see um, yeah, any evidence that would support me researching more about but but if you haven't researched that side of the argument is it really fair to say that you just don't see the evidence yeah yeah i mean i think so i mean like if uh like if we were using like the leprechaun farting thing that i brought up earlier if somebody said you know well have you ever really thought about like if the leprechaun farted the universe into being like you know the possibility of that and what that would look like and you know why you haven't read any books about it or anything and i'd be like well no i mean i, I kind of i don't have to have a, a deep understanding of it in order to think that it probably didn't happen wouldn't that give you more validity though if you did study out the impossibilities of leprechauns farting anything into existence well i don't think that you can prove a negative so i can't really prove that that didn't happen you know I, so were you, like, or, I mean, you I mean I I in a, in middle school I got into a debate about a guy who said you know can you disprove that the universe was created last Tuesday and we were all created with all of our memories and the world was created exactly as it is today but like last Tuesday and and I tried you know I spent multiple days going back and forth and then I just realized you know you can't prove you can't disprove anything like that so there's always something that they can say um, and there's always some way that they can do mental gymnastics to make it make sense that the world was created last Tuesday. And it's just a losing battle ultimately to try to disprove any claims like that. I got a question for you. A lot of non-believers that we have coming in, they usually state that they formally went to church. They formally were religious and all that. Mm -hmm. What is your background whenever it comes to this? Were you born in a secular home or, or did you go to church for a while? No, yeah. So I was basically, there was never really, as I was growing up, there was really never any, um, I didn't really learn about religions in that kind of way. I mean, um, I kind of, after I figured out about Santa Claus not being real, I kind of just assumed that that's how it was for the religions too. And then that I just kind of in my child brain, you know, I kind of thought that that was just another thing that the adults were telling the children. So I didn't realize that adults actually believed in religions until kind of like late like maybe sixth grade like something like that i didn't it was it was a while before i realized that adults were serious about that stuff well of course there's people who are serious about there being more to the universe and that there's life and existence and meaning and purpose i mean well, i really thought it was just something that they were telling the kids like santa claus i i really didn't think that adults genuinely believed that i was actually shocked like in sixth grade when I realized that, you know, that the, the teacher actually did believe in, in, in her religion. I was, I was pretty shocked to discover that. Well, I know this might be a fun fact for you, but you do know that Santa Claus is at least uh, 
created or elaborated upon based upon an actual person who existed yeah, at the time, right? So, I mean, there is still truth to it, except for the whole flying the reindeers and going down chimneys as an obese sure. man. <laughs> sure, I, I mean, God is also based on, like, like historical events from, you know, the late Bronze Age and early Iron Age. Right. I think one of the things that uh, Proverbs brought up, though, is interesting about the scriptures. How do you think it is that, yes, there are religions where they got their one book or a couple books and everything, but you've got almost 80 books, if you also count the Catholics, are men who throughout the ages were writing about this interaction and engagement with it. Now, if it was like one or twice, you could go, eh, I don't know, Santa Claus stuff. But 80 books all the way up to our been believed in since the modern times. How can you contrast that with the concept of Santa Claus? I would just look at the Quran, which has just about the same word count, the same amount of you know, historical discourse around it, uh, roughly the same amount of believers. No, so... we don't. Well, well, hold on. He he actually kind of has a point, Jerry. I hang oh, out with God. Muslims all the time. And you do realize, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to read the Quran, but they actually believe Jesus Christ existed. They believe he was the Messiah. They mention it 35 times. They also believe he's the one that will return in the end of the world. Yeah, a lot of their A lot of their stories are... Uh, if I, it's safe to say, or directly from what the Bible says, except for a few discrepancies. Hey, can I say something? Sure you can. Your mic's a little muffled, but give it a shot, Jerry. Nice oh. to meet you. All right. First of all, if Grayson will uh, call uh, Dr. James Tor, he's a professor at uh, Rice University. He will talk to you personally at a Zoom meeting. He's a professor of abiogenesis. You really need to call him and talk to him right today. I have Make emailed with Dr. Tour before. Uh, well, sorry, he, can you hear me? That, yeah. Have you had a Zoom meeting with him? No, no. He email, I emailed him a paper because he recently, he's been doing his video series on abiogenesis, and he's been asking for a paper that can show um, proteins forming in water without protecting agents. So then I sent him that paper. He was claiming that there was no such paper that existed. So I emailed him a couple, like maybe a week or two ago. And I said, here's the exact paper that you're looking for. It's proteins forming in water without protecting agents. Um, and then he responded back saying that he's too busy and he doesn't have time to make a video about every paper that he gets sent to him. Um, Tell him you don't believe in God and he'll talk to you soon. Okay, I, I would be interested Jerry. in having a Zoom conversation with him for sure. I, I was going to say, Jerry, your microphone, Jerry, your microphone sounds like you're speaking to a toilet paper roll. Is there any way you can switch that out? It's kind of rough. We want to hear what you have to say, but it's like, whoa, 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 like Charlie Brown's teacher. Oh, okay. I can try headphones, but I can't get them to work either. Oh, man. Well, if you can do something about that microphone, that'd be great, because we want to make you out. I've got bad ears. I blame it on 80s metal music myself. Oh, goodness. Grayson, do you believe that there are other... Is there a probability that there's other life that exists in the universe? I mean, I'm not ruling out any possibilities, yeah. You wouldn't say that it's irrational or stupid in any kind of way to think that if there's 10 trillion planets a scientist claim exist, then there has to be some amount of value to the idea that there's life out there. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds uh, sounds reasonable to me personally. Uh, you know, actually, when I was growing up, my dad put it in a really cool way that really spurned my childhood imagination where he saw me drawing a bunch of alien monsters and he came up to my over my shoulder and said, you know, the universe is so huge and there are so many different stars and planets that the odds are that the creatures that you're drawing probably exist out there somewhere. And so that just made me feel like, you know, I had the power, you know, these were real somewhere. So, it, you know, I, I know that that's not really the case necessarily, but I think it's like, you know, it was such a cool thing to think about. It made me really feel cool about my drawing. So I definitely think that there is a strong possibility of life outside of our solar system for sure. So you're an artist? I mean, yeah, I like to draw and paint, sculpt and that kind of stuff. Well, if you don't mind, after we get done like talking for a little bit, I'd appreciate it if you'd show me some of your work. I, uh, I've had musicians up here. I've had people who show off their work, and we really, uh, me and Proverbs, enjoy seeing people's creativity. Okay. Where do you think creativity and imagination came from, if you were to try to explain it through evolution, natural processes? Um, through abstract thinking and problem solving. Well, what I'm asking you is how do you think the mechanisms even got in there to make you be the imaginative, creative person that you are? Well, through neural connections. Well, what, okay, so what, how do I put this? What are the variables in the environment that cause this to happen to an atomical structure, this ability to have its memory capacity, its creativity, its imagination mm -hmm. is what I'm getting at. Not the horse in front of the carriage, but how did the mechanisms come into place? Right. So once you would have like a, you, you're going to have a certain amount of variety, right? In the number of neural connections that you have, like, Everybody has around the same average amount of neural connection, but some people have more, some people have a little bit less, right? I mean, there's a natural kind of variety but in that, right? So the people that have kind of like more neural connections, right, they're able to kind of, you know, if they have the right kinds of connections, um, which, again, we would expect to see when we have a variety like a, a, of a, like a neurological landscape among the individuals of a population, some of them are going to have a higher capacity for abstract thinking and problem solving. Like this is that kind of creative um, mode that you're talking about. And that's going to be beneficial for, you know, I mean, hunting, gathering, like finding the right resources, planning ahead and thinking in kind of abstract ways. There's going to be definite fitness benefits that come with that for the kind of ecological niche that kind of like, very early human ancestors were occupying. Got a weird question for you, Grayson. You probably never heard this before, but if I were to ask you right now, I were to challenge you to get out a notepad or a sketchboard and create something completely original, no matter how sloppy, messy, or beautiful it is, would you be able to create something that is absolutely unique that you haven't actually experienced in real life? Yeah, probably. Now, why do you think that you would have the ability to do that if you never actually experienced this? I mean, my strategy would just be to draw randomly like a like a sketch like that. And, you know, after a couple minutes of that, I would think that the probability of anybody else doing a completely random sketch like that in history would be effectively zero. Do you believe that evolution gives a good enough explanation on why it is that you're able to do this? how you're even able to think of your way of tactically uh, winning or, or getting uh, this art done. 
Yes. Well, go ahead. Explain it. Right. I mean, like I have a, a consciousness. I have a brain. I have a create the capacity for creative problem solving. And why? Because it was advantageous to my ancestors. Why do you think that we don't see that happen with any other creatures out there? Why we do. I... There are other creatures that are capable of abstract thinking and problem solving and creativity. You believe that they're on the same level as you? No, they don't have as many neural connections as me, but they're on the scale. But why is it that you and only humans that are involved in our species are able to do that, but nothing else? Because of the ecological niche that our ancestors occupied. Well, go ahead and elaborate on that. All right. So like our ancestors, right, when we when we came down from the trees, right, we were scavengers. We were looking for any kind of resources we could. We even transitioned to hunting and we occupied a kind of ecological niche in multiple environments, not just in like the grasslands, but we spread out too. Um, and we were occupying this kind of not so much like an apex predator because there were still other predators out there, but because we were working as groups, right. And we were developing um, like social bonds. There's, there's a large impetus, like kind of on the group as a whole to um, like a, a, an evolutionary pressure to uh, increase social cohesion um, so you can work together as a team and, and better survive together as a group. Um, and so like these social bonds spur things like language. They spur things like like being able to kind of put yourself in somebody's shoes and to try to interact with, with other people. Um, and all of these things contribute positively um, to brain capacity. And then also our ability to uh, cook our food, which other animals don't do, unlocks a lot more calories in our diet which, you know, having big brains takes up a lot of excess energy. So if we didn't cook our food, we would not be able to support um, our brains on on the kind of calorie consumption that we would have been able to find naturally. So I'm not what sure if I really of, what kind of food, what kind of food can we eat and what kind of things have to be happening in the environment to how shall I say, uh, come up with a nervous system or brain signals? Okay, so you're going way, way back now. So um, I guess we would have to start with like precursors to neurons for that question. And so that's going to be maybe like sponges or things that are even more basal than sponges. I mean, vertebrates and invertebrates, most kinds of animals have some kind of neuron, neurons or neurological systems. Even before multicellularity in, in some more basal single-celled creatures, they even have, um, they utilize action potentials, just like our neurons. I mean, that's how our neurons function is sending electrical signals via action potentials. And these organisms utilize action potentials for movement and sensing their environment. And that's the exact kind of um, molecular structure in the kind of enzymes and the process involved that our neurons use. So a lot of these processes would have started in single celled organisms for movement and and perceiving the environment, like chemicals, light signals, that kind of thing in their swimming. And those systems would have developed in single cells. And then once we got multicellular organisms, each cell needs to be able to communicate with the other cells in the organism. And a much faster way of communicating beyond sending hormones uh, is like, you know, 10 times faster than that is an action potential. And we do see sponges actually utilizing action potentials 
um, to kind of like clinch together or to kind of move really quickly as a, as a unit. So there are, um, you know, beneficial aspects to utilizing these action potentials before neurons or neurological systems could develop. And even I think in sponges recently, there was a paper I think I saw where the, um, the molecular machinery for the receiving end of a synapse, like how our brain has synapses between the nerves, uh, the neurons. So a lot of the molecular machinery for the receiving end of the synapse was found in a sponge, but sponges don't have synapses. They don't have like synapse to synapse neurons or nervous systems. So a lot of this, the system, like the machinery for a lot of this stuff had already been uh, like previously evolved for other kinds of solutions beyond like forming a nervous system. Mr. Grayson, I'm enjoying the conversation with you. I had the unfortunate experience of drinking too many Yoo-Hoo's and coffee. I have to use the restroom. Proverbs, would you like to talk to Grayson? And Grayson, I want to thank you for coming in, and I hope that you continue to revisit whenever I do live shows. You're very articulate and intelligent. I'm enjoying the discussion with you. Oh, well, thanks. I'll be I right it. back. Be right back. Yeah, I'd also like to add, Grayson, um, we get a lot of atheists in here that truthfully uh, – it's hard to admit as a Christian, but they're just very hard to like. But okay. you are the opposite. You're very likable. So, oh, you. you know, we enjoy having you here. Um, this might sound like a silly question uh, in the beginning, so I'll grant that. But have you ever observed a chicken like in its natural habitat? In its natural habitat? You mean like in Southeast Asia? Well, I mean just plucking around at the ground. Yeah, yeah. I've seen chickens, but they're not natural. They're domesticated. But yes. Okay, but you would agree that they are pretty stupid, right? Um, I mean, it's a it's a relative statement, right? Com compared to the human race, chickens are pretty stupid, though. Yeah, correct. I agree with you now. Okay, I'm I'm just wondering, can you explain what variables in the environment would cause the chicken to want to further the process of evolving into eventually becoming a human? Why would they want that? They don't have any knowledge of evolution. Well, with the theory of evolution, though, the chain of evolution, everything is connected in one way or another, correct? Um, are you talking about, like, universal common ancestry? Correct. Okay, then yes. Okay, my question would be, why did some of these chickens, stupid as they are, actually start evolving into other species until eventually we come to the human race? And why did some chickens stay chickens? Um, well, the, the chickens never evolved into anything other than chickens. Like, uh, chickens are a relatively new species. Okay, so what did the chicken evolve from? I mean, we didn't just create chickens in a lab one day. Yeah, so like a, a chicken would have evolved from more basal birds, which evolved from like therapsid dinosaurs. So you don't believe we have common ancestry with chickens? Well, our common ancestor with chickens would go back to like, like, so the chicken is over here, right? And they're going back through therapsid dinosaurs. They're going back to like basal amniotes, which are kind of like lizard looking things. They're not truly lizards, but they kind of superficially resemble them. And then um, humans would go back here. We would go back through, you know, apes and monkeys and like basal rodent looking mammals until we get to synapsids. And then we get to the basal amniotes too. So that would be the two paths between human and a chicken. And our common ancestry ancestor would be like this more basal amniote. 
Okay, so if the base, sorry, basinal amniote. Yeah, so like a the basal just describes that it's like at the base of the tree, kind of, or like the base of this branch. Um, so it's called an amnio, you know, like amniotic fluid or something like that. Yeah, like we're that's what that's what makes us amniotes. But an amniote is just sort of something that has, you know, that this property, like, um, like we have amniotic layers, um, and amniotes typically will develop into an egg, like a hard shelled egg, like a lizard would lay. So it's kind of like, um, you had like amphibians and then you had the amniotes split off from the amphibians and then the amniotes became modern uh, like reptiles and mammals and birds. Okay, so if it all began with the amniotes, what variables would cause them to develop differently? So it would be a factor of like what ecological niche that they're that they're fitting in, right? Every species has its own niche within the environment. So that's what's going to determine how successful it's able to be. Um, like if something is a plant eater, it's going to have a lot of different pressures than if something is like an apex predator. And what determines if you're a successful plant eater versus a successful predator are going to be two totally different things. So it depends on what niche that they're fulfilling in the environment, first of all. And then second of all, it would depend on like if they're reproductively isolated, like if they you know, one of them goes to Africa and one of them goes to Asia, then there's probably not going to be a lot of gene flow between the two. And eventually they'll differentiate to where they can no longer crossbreed. And then from that point, it's sort of like, you know, two separate paths of evolution. Um, and then I'm sorry, your question was asking about what caused the amniote to differentiate into both humans and chickens, right? Well, so what I'm actually trying to get at is if you believe like that's one of the earliest chains of the evolution that caused the entire tree that branched off in all the different directions, I would assume that you'd also believe that it started in the same environment, right? Because it had to evolve itself in that same location. Why would it evolve and need different, as you put it, niches? I yeah, mean, shouldn't the, shouldn't the variables in the environment cause all all of those to evolve similarly yeah so the original population of amniotes which you're talking about they had a certain geographical range right and they were best suited for a certain kind of environment say it's like you know like a like it's grassland or i don't know some something that's like not exactly where um amphibians would live right on the water but it's not like a desert or whatever you know they they have an environment where they're the best at um so they either spread out geographically, right? They're either a successful species like us and we spread to all the other continents. Um, and then once, you know, you're isolated geographically, um, then you would start to differentiate. And I'll ask you about ring species, but I also just want to say the other thing would be like climate change. Say that these population of basal amniotes is, is thriving in its range. And suddenly the environment starts to get much drier and drier and suddenly like a river that was in between them dries up, you start having isolated populations now, or like the, they have to change something about how they're, they're living because their previous niche is no longer tenable in the new climate. So like when the environment changes, that can spurn these evolutionary changes that diverge species, or you can have genetic drift just due to like different geographical areas. So I was gonna ask you about, um, have you ever heard of the term ring species? I have not. Please, uh, please inform us. So this has been observed with like, I think it was a type of salamander in California. 
California, but there's other examples of ring species. That was just one of the more well-known ones. But when you have like a geographical barrier, like a mountain range or something, it, so we've observed like, like I think it was salamanders in this instance where they live on, on one certain side of the mountain range, but then they start to migrate around the mountain range. And you start getting different varieties depending on where in the mountain range this is to where, you know, you might get a red salamander over here and then they migrate over here and become more like a yellow variety of salamander. And then when they go further south, now they're a yellow and black spotted salamander. They go down here, they get, you know, red rings or whatever. And now suddenly they've gone in a total ring, a circle around this geographical obstacle like a mountain. And when they meet back on the other side, they've actually diversified so much that they can no longer interbreed. Like that original population of salamanders and the version of this and the populations that went all the way around the mountain are now so different that they're like, they're not the same species anymore. They can no longer interbreed. And so we've observed that kind of thing actually happening. Yeah, that's not really evolution though, is it? That's more of extreme adaptability, which creationists believe in adaptability. So I would say that that's like the definition of evolution. I mean, evolution is descent with modification. So that, that is the definition of, mod of, of evolution would be the ring species. Okay, very interesting. So what, Wait, is what did you call it there with adaptability? Adaptability. That would be an extreme case of adaptabilities. For instance, like skin pigment. Mm, okay, so it, for something to be adaptability versus evolution... How do you draw that distinction? Is it this concept of like new information being added or how do you, you know, square that circle? Well, as a Christian, I throw evolution out of the box completely. So the only form of a type of evolution, if you would call it that, that I would I would uh, agree with would be adaptability. For instance, uh, animals in colder climates have longer hair, but the same species of animal can have shorter hair in a warmer climate. Same with skin pigment. You know, this is adaptability. These are traits that God put in us when he created us so that we can adapt to our environments. But that's much different from evolving from single cell organisms eventually into creation like we know it today. Can I ask you like, why it's different for you because if when i hear it like it, it basically sounds like like you could basically say you know god created life with the ability to evolve and that would be the same thing in my head like it, i mean I, when i see that you know god created these things with the ability to adapt to their environment that just sounds like theistic evolution to me yeah, theist uh, evolution, that would be more along the lines of with uh, Catholicism, which is totally different from my perspective. Uh, I'm a young earth creationist. I believe the Bible is literally true and accurate. So I believe the world is under 7,000 years old. And being 7,000 years old, there's not enough time to evolve. But also we have a lot of that 7,000 years uh, as recorded history. So I would go with the recorded history that we have in the scriptures, which goes back over 5,000 years if you don't take the earlier parts of the scripture, which go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, I don't know. I think that there's a little bit of some problems with that model, but I don't know how much you want to get into all of all No, of go that. for it. I mean, yeah, so I don't really see, um, obviously, like, I don't see evidence for a global flood, but I also think that the, like, Egyptian written history goes back b before the the point of the flood. 
I disagree that it goes back before the flood. And what's interesting is that the Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, and Mitzrayim was the grandson of Noah. So Noah's grandson was actually the founder and forefather of Egypt. But again, these are things that are all explained in the Bible. But in like the we Bible, have a very detailed history. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but in the Bible, Moses was raised in Egypt, like in the Pharaoh's family. So it sounds like Egypt already existed before Moses. Well, I didn't say Moses. I said Noah. Oh, I two, thought you two said di- no, no, I'm sorry. Two different characters. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, would have been the grandson of Noah. But you are correct, so, yes. And why is it that in the archaeological record, the first pharaoh of a united Egypt is Narmer, which is not this guy that you're talking about? Like, we have the actual, you know, the writing, hey, this guy, Narmer. Because Narmer, Narmer is the Egyptian name. Mitzrayim is the name in Hebrew. So but you're Hebrew you're talking about the language at that point. Well, it it would have been though because it's an offshoot of Phoenician. As a matter of fact, they claim that Phoenician is the first offshoot from the first Hebrew dialect. Well, no, I mean, like we have Proto-Sinaic script in Egypt, like kind of more towards the Sinai area, that is like predates any Phoenician writing. Um, and it is a Semitic script, but it's like, it's before Hebrew as well. Well, right. That's because what we know as modern Hebrew today isn't even actually Hebrew. It's Aramaic. But then you go back a little further, you get to Hebrew, you get back before that, you have other Semitic languages, uh, and eventually you do cross over the Phoenician. So are you disagreeing then that, like, because we have a conception of language families, right? Like, Hebrew is within the Afro-Asiatic language group, and Indo-European languages are a different language group, and Sino-Tibetan are different. So, like, if you're just saying that Hebrew was always existing, or, like, was existing from the flood on, or, or whatever you're saying, like, it just doesn't make sense to me, given our what we know from linguistics about where the Hebrew language derived from. Well, the Hebrew language would have came from Abraham. After he had left Canaan. Oh, by the way, folks, I'm back. I see that somebody's trying to share their screen. Who is that that's doing that? Not, Not I. Knowledge. Oh, yeah, I see. Looks like somebody beating away at their computer over there. Eh, I guess it's nothing. All right. So where are we at right now in the discussion? I apologize for needing to take my break. Natural processes, right? Yeah, um, so, something like that, I'm sure. <laughs> we can start anywhere, really. I'm game. I guess my audio is not working, right? I'm sorry, Jerry, but you're extremely quiet. I can't hardly hear you. Goodness yeah, gracious. my audio is not working. It's so sad. We get folks in here, and they just can't get that microphone working. It's horrible. Oh, boy. So, Grayson, I guess I, I got a question for you. Are you Have you ever been fascinated, at least uh, whenever it comes to the discussions we've been having about um, like uh, healing, the way our bodies are able to go through a healing process? Uh, when do you think in evolution this actually happened, where the bodies were able to do this and how? I would probably think... And I haven't done much reading on the origin of this. So this is just 
my initial thoughts on your question, but I would think that the processes probably would have begun in a rudimentary way when we were still single-celled organisms, so before multicellularity. Can you explain why that would have happened? Um, yeah, so there would be, like, it would be advantageous, right? I mean, like, if you were able to um, have either error-correcting processes or some kind of, like, repair of damage as a single cell, then obviously that's going to impart a fitness advantage for your species, right? I mean, I think that that would be pretty obvious. Well, yeah. I mean, you're basically saying that if something like this is happening, then it's going to be good for us. I agree. I agree that there's a lot of things that are happening to us that are good. But the question is, is how does this good thing happen and how did it even come into existence? The reason why I asked this question, Grayson, is you obviously, being that you don't believe in the supernatural, you don't believe that there's some kind of consciousness out there, then you'd have to agree that if evolution is nothing more than a natural process, it doesn't feel pain. It doesn't even have an understanding. It doesn't care when you were born, when your birthday is, when you're going to die. And it's definitely not going to send you a Christmas present. So mm -hmm. why would it? Uh, why would it involve itself, live or not, or conscious, to give you uh, this ability? Well, I think that you're maybe personifying the the process of natural selection a bit, but. Um... Like, I mean, it's not like it's an entity that's that's doing all these things. But like, I mean, I said, like, if, if something is, an, is a benefit to fitness, it's going to be positively selected for. And I think that that's kind of like the whole tenet of the theory, right? But you do believe that evolution is a blind process or is it guided? Well, it's guided by natural selection. Okay. Would you be able to explain how natural selection... Um, I don't want to use the word decision because that would be exactly what you're talking about, that persona thing. But I know what you're natural... talking about. I can kind of help illustrate it maybe. So like in the very, very simplest conception of, of this, right? Like if we have two like chemical replicators, right? Not even life at this point, just two chemical rep replicators. And all they do is replicate themselves. If you have one replicator that's capable of using its resources more efficiently and is capable of making three replications per hour versus the other kind that's only capable of using two replications per hour, then eventually the kind that can make more replications is going to take over the population, right? You would agree with that. Right. Obviously, the more uh, tools it's got to its uh, trade, it's going to yeah. be able so, to do better. So sure. That would be illustrating. It's not like natural selection made a decision and chose the faster replicator. It's just a result of both of them trying to use, use their resources and replicate as fast as possible. One is just better. So it takes over the population and it dominates. But it's not like there was ever an entity that chose for that one to dominate. It's just a result of it having better fitness. Yeah, but that's uh, that's where the question lies. Where did it come up with the concept that it even needed this or required this in order to be able to go through the survival process you speak of? See, so well, you, you keep on you keep on speaking of the horse, but not the carriage. I'm asking, how did this happen? So looks the, like the, we've got Mr. Adam Lauren. Welcome to the room, Grayson. Go ahead. So the the fitness is just decided by like the environment around it. Like in this example, the fitness is determined by the resources that are available, right? So if there's only a finite amount of space and a finite amount of resources, then the most fit 
is going to be the species that is replicating the fastest with the least yes. amount of resources. The, I mean, that's, that's what is determining these things. So are you asking about like, are you talking about the mutation process or I'm a little bit uncertain okay, about what so you're asking? Grayson, where, what the problem is, is you're telling me, you're saying, look, it needed this in order to be able to survive. If it didn't have this benefits, it wasn't going to make it. I'm all with you on that. I agree with you. If it didn't Wait, have... Because that's we, not what I'm saying, right? Because okay. in both cases, they were both replicators that were capable of surviving, right? Just because the one only made two copies per hour and the other one made three, that doesn't mean that they that the other one is going to die, right? right. They can both let's, live. Let's it's say, because let, they're let in competition with each other. Grace, and let me try that. loses. Grayson, let me try this on you. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give you five replicators. And okay. four. the four came from the one, all right? At what okay. point in time during this replication did it give it the ability to be able to heal itself if it's damaged or something happens in the environment? So that would be a very, very far down the line from just replicators, right? Because, I mean, you would have to have a, a, a lot more of a complicated system for it to even be able to support any kind of self-repair system. So we would have to be talking about like cells or protocells at that point. That's a good way you worded that. I like that. How did it get its self-repair system? Yeah. I'm asking you, how did it get this uh, the self-repair system? Well, I mean, the, the most intellectually honest answer I can give you is I don't know, but we could talk about some, like, maybe plausible mechanisms that it could do this in a naturalistic way. And right there, ladies and gentlemen, is why I like Grayson. He's intellectually honest. If he doesn't know the answer, he doesn't make things up. He just says, look, I don't know. That's cool, man. That's cool. Hey, Adam, how you doing? How's your day been? And then we'll get back into some more conversation. We've been putting this man on the hot seat for an hour and nine minutes. Unbelievable. And he's doing pretty good, I must say. And he's conducted himself as a gentleman. Is my mic working? Adam, are you live? You got oh, your microphone hooked up, apparently. Who's the guy? I don't know. Someone else is trying to speak. Is my mic working? Yeah, Jerry, I'll tell you what, you come back whenever you learn how technology works. All right, brother. All right, see you later. It's the year 23, no excuses. Go ahead there, Adam. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, Grayson seems awesome. It's pretty rare that someone comes in here who is an atheist that even knows what the Lambda CDM model is, let alone like, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. Thanks. So, and Grayson seems awesome. He doesn't seem like cocky or anything. So, but um, cool. Yeah, doing all right. How's everybody doing? Oh, we're doing pretty good. Just uh, having a good discussion. I do. I We're not talking down to you at all, Grayson. We like you. We get a lot of people who are not able, capable of getting this far into a conversation, but it's obvious you've done research and done some study, and that's what we're looking for. That's one of the reasons I called you out on your channel. I could tell you had something going on there. Yeah, well, I just started my new channel, um, so it's only like maybe two or three weeks old. So I just started this. I, the first thing I put out was that debate with Kent Hovind. So I've been doing just a couple of like creationist mainly debates. Um, but yeah, I, I find all of these topics very interesting. So I like it whenever a creationist will act, ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, because oftentimes I, I will like learn new things when I'm like, go back and research it. Very good, very good. Mr. Kent Hovind will be with us on Fridays at uh, 3 p.m., isn't it, Proverbs Guy? We got it. That scheduled. is correct, yep. 
Oh, well, I have a debate coming up with Kent. Our third debate now, so part three, um, is going to be on uh, the age of the Earth. So I don't think that it's been set in stone for what date that's going to be on, but we'll be talking about, you know, the the moon's recession and the magnetic field strength and all of his little go-tos that he likes to point to to try to disprove the Earth being billions of years old. I'm not uh, in any way dumping on my pal Donnie standing for truth, but some non-believers tend to like this way, this format of doing things, because you're able to have an open discussion about things as mm -hmm. opposed to be pressured and timed. So if you want to come in whenever he's in here and have a discussion with them, that's uh, you're more than welcome. Adam, do you have any questions you'd like to get into? I do, as long as Grayson doesn't feel like he's being put on the spot. <laughs> no, man, it's all good. Okay, it looks cool. like he enjoys himself, Adam. Yeah. Yeah, so I have a, just a couple questions. Um, I, would, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I assume that you value critical thinking and, and skepticism, right? Yeah, my favorite childhood story was the Emperor's New Clothes. Okay. So what in mainstream science have you applied critical thinking to and skepticism and found issues with? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Like kind of something where I've been reading it and I'm like, mm, that kind of smells like BS. <laughs> um, hmm. I guess I, I have somewhat of, you know, I think that we're still very much in our infancy and in our understanding of consciousness and the brain. So a lot of like, um, like psychiatric studies and research, it just kind of seems to me as not sophisticated enough to really be able to draw some strong conclusions for. So I kind of, I stay away from the things that mess with my brain and in, in, in these, in these chemical ways that are, you know, Oh, we have the evidence that this can help some people. And I, I kind of am, I'm a little bit maybe overly cautious. Some people might say about, about some of that stuff, just because I think that, um, you know, I have certain conceptions of things where I think, you know, I've got a hunch that maybe this is how things are working in the brain. And so maybe, um, you know, the science isn't there yet. We don't have methods to really delve in those ways. So I just kind of have hypotheses. And then same with um, with quantum physics, um, where I actually really disagree with the Copenhagen interpretation, which is kind of like the main interpretation of quantum mechanics from like the 1920s. And I really dislike how the, the Copen interpretation like has the math be probabilities rather than uh, like densities. So I kind of it's a kind of a niche thing, but my conception of quantum mechanics is definitely different than the standard interpretation. Right. So but you you do agree that you should be applying critical thinking and skepticism to anything, regardless of what your hunch is about it. Right. Like to evolution, yep. to Big Bang. So what you you have have you applied skepticism to any of those things? Like that you've been talking yeah. about evolution, like the Lambda CDM model, for example. Sure. Yeah. Why do we need a Lambda CDM model? Because the other models had problems, right? So I mean, yeah, I mean the Lambda CDM model is kind of just uh like an amalgamation of all of our current like understandings of cosmology. So Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they don't have all the answers either. I mean, who knows what dark energy is or dark matter or the things that are in the model that we 
are just kind of scratching our head out at this point. We just don't know. I don't know about you, Adam, but he just won 50 internet points for that statement. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I mean, I try to be as intellectually honest when talking about these subjects as I can be. I mean, I don't want to... Like, I, I try to only... I kind of I want to be able to let the evidence lead to the conclusions whenever I'm looking at these things. Yeah. So I try to be skeptical uh, about just about everything. Is there a different interpretation of quantum mechanics that you said you make? Um, well, just the standard is the Copenhagen interpretation. So there are some other more niche ones like um, like I tend to think that the collapse of a superposition is something actually physically going on and like a, an actual physical property. Um, huh. And that is not the mainstream interpretation. And then like the wave function, you know, is often depicted as a probability like, oh, you have a 90% chance of finding the electron in this cloud area. Right. But I tend to interpret that as being a density of the electron rather than a probability of finding it because I kind of, I don't conceptualize these particles as these tiny little, little points. You know, I think that of them as those points are the only the points of interaction. That's not the point that the electron exists at. It's more spread across the whole wave function. Yeah. So I, that's not really the standard interpretation. Like the Copenhagen interpretation is the, the probabilistic one. Okay. Oh, hey, this actually real quick. Uh, one more question, because you mentioned this earlier. Have you ever heard of the um, the um, birds first hypothesis of dinosaurs? The what first? Birds first. Birds <clears throat> you're, talking first. About, you're talking about ch chickens come from dinosaurs. Have you ever yeah. heard the, the hypothesis that birds came before the camera, what they're called? I um, haven't heard that, but I would have to see evidence for that. From the last thing I saw was that the first birds came along the scene around like 100 or 110 million years, 150 maybe years, million years ago. Yeah. And so they did coexist with dinosaurs for a little bit there because, right, the dinosaurs go up to 65. So there was like a span of time where there was like some coexistence, but ultimately... I think all of the evidence I'm aware of shows that birds are derived from theropod dinosaurs. Like well, what I, the, the thing that I find compelling is that um, if you look at the fossil record, man, I can't remember what the name of the birds. There's a or the, there's a specific type of dinosaur, manoraptors, manoraptorans, mm -hmm. that the mainstream claims that birds came from, but birds arrive in the fossil record before them yeah so birds show up before the animal that they claim birds came from that is very fascinating to me i mean they could have come from another kind of theropod dinosaur that was not the one that you're pointing out to but because i mean there, there are theropod dinosaurs pretty early on in the fossil record i mean i think um i think the first ones that you find are maybe in the in the the triassic maybe or the jurassic i'm not i, I don't have, have it off the hand but um they're like very small theropods you don't get these like big t-rexes until right. later on but um like just in the order of of things in the fossil record we find theropod dinosaurs below the layers where we find birds so i don't think we ever find um dinosaur we don't ever find birds below dinosaurs well, not dinosaurs in general, but the type, like if you, the type of dinosaurs that they claim that birds are coming from, birds are in the fossil record, like something like 10 million years before 
maybe wow. like for that specific species but yeah. like the theropod dinosaurs i think it's a pretty convincing argument just based on like the anatomy of the hips um the different like traits that dinosaurs right, right. Have do, do you kind of get what i'm saying if they yeah they they have traits in common and they may have shared a common ancestor but the question is how do we know which one came first the mainstream the really popular idea is that the one we find later in the fossil record came first that doesn't make any sense to me well i don't know if anybody i've never i've certainly never heard of anyone saying birds came from this specific species of dinosaurs so i've always heard it more general mm -hmm. as them just being some species of theropod dinosaurs right so, but how would you go into into looking into that though and investigating that? The you order of the fossil record. record. Like so whichever is appearing in the, the deepest layers in the fossil record would be the one that was coming around first. Right. So I mean that's that's one one thing I've seen in the mainstream that I find issue with is that there's this claim that that uh birds are coming from this specific type of dinosaur but then it's like that's a that to me is a pretty severe discrepancy like i don't know well, i'd have to look more at it in specific for like the specific kind of dinosaur you're talking about yeah yeah anyways i don't know just because you that had come up earlier when you guys were talking about chickens i found it interesting yeah well hey brett i appreciate you linking my channel that means a lot because i'm you know just trying to grow my my youtube channel i just started so appreciate that well, it's uh, you've decided to come on here, and I feel like you're a good guest. I mean, why not? <laughs> yeah, thanks. So for everyone listening only, it's it's called based theory, like um, like based, like the opposite of cringe. Um, it was originally critical based theory, but it was kind of a mouthful and kind of it was a pun on critical race theory. But I I thought maybe people might take that the wrong way, so I just shortened it to based theory. Can I give you a suggestion though? Your sure. uh, your handle is extremely long. If you go into your settings on YouTube, you should make a more simple um, handle for people to be able to find you real quick. Mm. Right now, it's got a bunch of numbers behind it, and that's going to be confusing for some who, if you were to just say critical-based or whatever like that, people obviously would get it quicker. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. So uh, thanks. I appreciate the feedback. Yeah, you should do that almost as quickly as possible because your channel will end up rising and growing. I'm sure with your personality and charisma, I think that you, uh, you, you're definitely going to launch. So make sure that that's fixed before you get up there too high. Yeah, uh, great point. Great point. So I appreciate your expertise on the area. It's all good. It's all good. So let's see. Now, were there any other questions that you wanted to ask me about, I guess, evolution, Big Bang, atheism, whatever? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that me and Adam, we like to get into, and if Proverbs wants to uh, participate in this, what is your thoughts about the uh, the Cambrian period and the, the explosion that seemed to erupt from it? It's one of my favorite periods of geological history. Got all some of my, all my favorite, you know, prehistoric creatures, and I'm like, like opabinia like hallucinogenia it's got some of my favorite critters so what do you uh how do you feel about it do you feel like uh that was too sped up or just too much happening in a very short time period what is your explanation or view of it um no i mean i wish you know that we had maybe some more of the soft-bodied intermediates from pr uh, previous eras but it makes sense to me right if uh if you know these things were only developing hard shells like in the Cambrian period 
And if in previous period they were more soft bodied animals, like it makes sense to me why they wouldn't fossilize. But we do have um, in the period before the Cambrian is the Ediacaran. And we do have um, fossils from the Ediacaran period of multicellular uh, creatures. So we have been lucky enough to have at least some uh, pre-Cambrian fossils to go off of. But it's like one of my favorite uh fields in in like the, in in the study of geological periods that in the carboniferous really but um so yeah i mean I, I i obviously i wish you know i love all the new discoveries like i think what like in 2015 or something they found a new uh creature from the cambrian um like in china and it's like it's this it's this massive creature like it's even bigger than anomalous caris it's huge and i'm just like I, I love new discoveries like that so hopefully there'll be a few more of those within my lifetime what is your thoughts on uh, the fermi paradox like why we don't see like evidence for alien species outside of our own yeah you would think that if the universe is as old as it is and I and I have no discrepancy or hate towards this. Other people might, but I just wonder why it is that Earth seems to be having the only life forms. I know some people might argue, well, we just haven't become technological enough to do this, but you would suspect there'd be other advanced beings, perhaps even superior mm -hmm. than ourselves, that would have reached out by now or done something. Um, so I would think about this in terms of how early advanced life could have evolved in the history of the universe and then where we are now in that time frame. So like, I would think that the only type of atom that's really, um, you know, the only type of atom that would really work in a kind of complicated system, like living beings would be carbon. So you would need carbon. So already, in the very first generation of stars formed after the Big Bang, you're not going to have enough carbon for there to be, you know, life evolving on planets or anything. So it's not like you can get life right away after the first stars and planets formed. So you would need a second or a third generation solar system. Um, so ours, I think, is estimated to be a third generation. So there were, you know, there were elements it already present in like the accretion disk that formed the our solar system that had to be uh, created in previous generations of stars. So I think that that kind of sets a limit to where we're kind of on the earlier end for when life could possibly arise. And then the second question in that kind of timeline is um, how do you get multicellular life? Um, because I think single cellular, single cellular life is probably the most common in our universe. If I have to take a guess at it, like, I could very easily see us finding a an, an animal plant like like a planet that had life, but it's all single cells. Um, I think that the development of multicellularity is is one thing that maybe doesn't necessarily happen in every time that life would evolve. And then the development of like intelligent beings like us is another thing that I would question because like we only came about after all the dinosaurs went extinct, right? I mean. The mammals were not capable of outcompeting dinosaurs. Like if there were still dinosaurs around today, like uh, mammals would not be able to compete. Like their their bones are lighter and yet their muscles are stronger. They require less 
um, like energy, like their metabolism is much more efficient, but they can also outspeed us and out endure us. Like just physically <laughs> there's they they outcompete us in every way. Like if dinosaurs never went extinct in a mass extinction, then, you know, who knows if intelligent life would have come about because you've got these killing machines <laughs> that are just like, you know, physically so much better than any of their competition. Then it's like, you know, they, they would have no need of developing intelligence or technology. They're already very successful in their ecological niches and environments just as physical killing machines. So you only really get um, like the evolution of humans based on like it was never like a predetermined thing that humans were definitely going to come about. Like without the kind of ecological catastrophes that led to the extinction of dinosaurs, we could very well still be in a dinosaur world and the, the mammals would have never even gotten a chance. It's an interesting point. Now it's obvious that you believe that you evolved from a primate of some sort. Do you believe, do you assume that all creatures are capable of going through this process of evolution? Like all creatures on earth today? Do you believe that there's any creatures that simply did not evolve or they evolved some extremely beneficial things that there's no way that humans would be able to do? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, certainly, I mean, I, I would say that there's evidence for universal common ancestry. So we would all go back to like the same ancestor, like all the species that are currently on earth. But for evolution to work, right, you, you can't really have like a, a super massive step where all of a sudden you've created this whole new thing in one generation. Like it has to mutate from pre-existing um, systems. So if, you know, it's not like, um, like it, we all have 20 amino acids, right? Because if you were going to change the coding for the amino acids, that would have such wide ranging impacts that it would like mess up the entire biochemistry of the body and you would just never be able to form it correctly. So there are some things that are like, you know, that you're like a mutation in a pre-existing system is not going to get you to this kind of a destination, uh, like of a thing. Like, I, so there are things that I don't think could happen based on like mutation and natural selection. Cause every step along the way has to be beneficial or neutral. You're saying that it has to be that way. It, it needs to be in order for it to survive. Yep. You've, uh, you probably heard this question before, but it's obvious that we all agree that there's definitely some smart creatures out there, but they've, none of them except for us has had an industrial age and enlightenment age and all this. You do believe that these other creatures and these other groups, they form social bonds. Mm -hmm. They have been in some of the same environments as us. Why didn't they get the magic mojo for it? Like why? Well, for the vast majority of human history, right? We did not have the kind of technology we have now or the industrial age. So just having the, like the brains, like our modern brains and our modern physical capabilities did not mean that we just automatically developed all these technologies. We had to build off of like, you know, cultural uh, achievements, cultural uh, memories, and we had to pass along these developments as culture. So there are animals that do have like the ability to pass on culture. Like I think there are some populations of chimps that are in the stone age and they use stone age tools and they pass along knowledge of these tools to their offspring and they have cultures. Um, but I think, 
yeah, ultimately, um, one, if they, if they were highly intelligent enough, like they might not necessarily have like the kinds of, um, like fingers and hands that we do that can manipulate technology, like a whale or something. Um, and yeah, they ultimately, they, they, I can't think of another organism that has large brains like us that occupies the same kind of niche that we do as like a group of hunter gatherers. Well, let's uh, just a hypothetical, but if you were to pick your favorite creature in the world that you think is extremely smart and it suddenly were to get opposable thumbs and all that, do you think it would be in any kind of competition with you in a debate or a discussion? And we won't take it as arrogant if you say, nope. <laughs> well, no, clearly not. But over like, if there were like, you know, if we were breeding this, if we had like a selective pressure for this like organism, my favorite animal is a snow leopard. So if we, if we had snow leopards with opposable thumbs and there was a selection pressure for them to like, you know, the more intelligent snow leopard survived and has the most kids then over, you know, lots and lots and lots of generations of this, then I would see no reason why they couldn't evolve to be more intelligent than me. All right. I'm going to I'm going to move it into some different topics. We'll still jump back and forth between evolution, but I want to get a baseline of where you are at in your skepticism. Okay. Do you believe that there's more to you than just animated meat? Um <laughs> I kind of need to some clarification on that topic because I believe that I have like a subjective experience and I think that that's more than just like the meat but i believe that that's an emergent phenomenon um of you know ultimately it's it's all naturalistic material things that are causing this phenomenon that is me okay would you uh, be able to elaborate on why you see it as a phenom why i see it as a phenomenon yeah i like saying phenom because of the undertaker wwe go ahead okay um well because i the 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 clearest thing that i could say of like what is the actual physical material substance that is me like my thoughts would be a phenomenon it would be a process it would not be an actual thing like the actual material that my thoughts are made of is kind of like um like very complicated controlled patterns of salt ion flow in my brain like the electricity is just salt ions that are moving in certain patterns so that's the actual physical material that is making up my thoughts. So all those things that are going on in my brain is just a process of these very controlled flows. So it's not like an actual substance. It's like a, an event and a, a process that is ongoing. That's why I refer to it as a phenomenon. And of course, the emergent phenomenon would be my subjective experience. What is your view or position? And I don't know if I've put Adam and Proverbs asleep over there. I hope they jump in the conversation as well at some point in time. But uh, what is your thoughts about death and what happens? You obviously believe there's some energy here involved. Do you believe that you will continue to exist after your physical body goes bye-bye? No. I mean, I would think it's the same thing that happened before I was born, you know, just sort of a nothing. So do you believe that you have a soul? No. You don't believe that you have a soul that makes you unique from, say, myself, Brett, and Adam? No, I don't believe that what makes us unique is a soul. 
All right, well, it's fair enough. Well, he he has said that he's an atheist, so he doesn't believe uh, in God, so he's obviously not going to believe in a generator for that. But wouldn't that necessarily come down to you're describing yourself as nothing but chemicals or animated, almost like that of an animated hamburger? I'm not trying to insult you, but it's pretty much down to the meat and chemistry, right? Um. Yes and no. Like I, while I agree that like, it's kind of like a differentiation between software and hardware, right? Like, um, like ultimately all the software is corresponding to actual processes going on in the hardware, but we still can have an experience at the software level. Um, so like the emergent phenomenon that is consciousness, that is my subjective experience. I experience that as something that's you know, more than just the sum of the parts that are actually going on. But that's just my experience of it. That doesn't mean that physically anything more is happening than just the processes that are leading to this emergent phenomenon. Okay, I got a weird, I got one more weird question and I'm let Adam and Proverbs go for a little bit because I'm starting to feel like, oh no, I don't want to put these guys to sleep with my monotone voice. But okay, last question for you and then let these gentlemen talk with you a bit. Um, if you and I were to go into a computer store that has the most advanced superior computers in the world, and for whatever reason, you and I had a bad day, I hand you a baseball bat, I take a baseball bat, we crush these advanced, awesome computers, thousands of dollars worth of equipment, then we dump all the powdery computer stuff into a bag. How long would it take before we could both reach in and pull out at least an 8-bit uh, Game Boy? <laughs> I, I don't think that would happen. Why not? It's all these parts are there. Yeah, but I mean, just because all the parts are there doesn't mean they're kind of going to come together in the right order. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, yep. you guys go ahead. Thank you for being intellectually honest. I'm going to take a break for a moment. Let you guys go. <laughs> well, I would also just like to add because I, I obviously I know the direction that you're implying with that. So I'll just add that I don't think that that's an analogous process to abiogenesis. Fair enough. Fair enough. Go ahead, Proverbs and Adam. I'm going to take a break for a few minutes. Adam, it sounded like you had a question a, a moment ago. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of a lot similar lines to what Brett was saying, but earlier you were talking about um, ions and electricity and salt and that sort of thing. Um, and you described your subjective experience as simply an emergent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, do you believe that if you if you if we just set up experiments where you put electricity and salt and ions in the right configuration, that it would result in a subjective inner experience? Or do you yeah. like, what are your, what are your thoughts on like the hard problem of consciousness and things like that? I mean, I definitely think like if you could somehow control like the the flow of these salt ions, like you're controlling the pattern of electricity in like a glass of water or something. Somehow, if you could control it on like the very, very small level, like that would be like, you could re recreate all of my brain connections hmm. and like the, the, the flow of ions between them. Like you were basically reconnecting all the electricity in my brain, but you were like uh, remaking that in a, in a glass of water then that glass of water would be having its own subjective experience that would be like my own if we're in if if our brain chemistry is the same and the pattern of of electricity flow is the same then our subjective states would be the same as well wow okay 
But I don't think that obviously that technology is not possible at the moment. And I don't know how that would be physically possible, but just for the sake of argument, I don't see like any laws of physics going against that. And yeah, I, I just mean like on a fundamental level, like I personally don't think that like machines, for example, will, will ever have sentience. I just really fundamentally don't think that that's how it works. But I mean, if, 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 if you could replicate, um, cause like I don't, all of our it. neurons and all of our neural connections and the kinds of patterns of right. flow between them, then why would well, it be any different? Because my consciousness is more than salt and electricity. <laughs> like, that's what I, I don't believe. It's just salt and electricity. But like, you know, I, I obviously I'm being a little bit reductive when I say it's just salt and electricity. There are like there are ways of modulating the flow of this that involve neurotransmitters and gated channels and all these complicated things. But ultimately, all that is, is shepherding the right kind of patterns that of, of ion flow that you need. So if you were able to replicate those patterns using technology, then I don't see how it could be any different than you or I or our subjective experiences. Right. Well, two, two things. One, I don't see, to me, sounds like not the greatest argument in favor of something. It's just sort of an argument from ignorance. But the other thing is we have two things. We have the subjective experience itself, and we have like computers to compare to that at least currently don't seem to be anywhere near having subjective experiences. So, Well, you know, there is an argument to be made because obviously we don't have any computers that have simulated a human brain. Like none of them have that kind of sophistication. We're still very, very primitive in our technology in that regard. So I don't think that we can necessarily draw any conclusions from our current uh, state, like crude state of technology in that regard. But we have replicated the most simple brain observed in the animal kingdom, which is a nematode. So they only have like 300 and like 70 something neurons. So, hmm we've been able to replicate their brain in a computer and then we see how it behaves and we give it the same stimulus mm. and it behaves exactly like a nematode. Like we've created like a digital nematode. Like if you give nematode stimulus a, it behaves this way Outwardly, in our, in our simulation, it behaves the exact same way. Outwardly it behaves similarly. Yes. So, but that doesn't get anywhere near to addressing the fundamental problem of the hard problem of consciousness is how could you even have subjective experience to begin with? I, I don't understand why it's a hard problem. I mean, I, I guess you're kind of pointing to like a Do you know what I mean box. by the, when I say the hard problem of consciousness by, um, the, who's the guy, Chalmers? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard the term before, but I don't understand why it's such a hard problem. Well, whether you think it's hard or not, that's the name. That's like the name. Yes, given. I understand that that's the term. Okay, yeah, yeah. I just like, want to make why, sure. You, why would it be a problem? Why is consciousness not explainable from like, as an emergent, phenomenon of you know brain activity i mean if if it's not then why are we able to change your consciousness when by changing your brain state like if we put you into a very strong magnetic field we hmm. could change your entire moral system like, but that's the weak you're you're getting so you're responding to the hard problem with things about the weak problem so i don't know like if you do understand the distinction Maybe I don't then. I mean, I'd be happy if you explain. Like the weak, the weak problems, like in, um, I think that currently it's probably outside of the realm of science. Like it's just a matter of philosophy currently because we don't seem to have the science to be able to address the problem. But things like that, like how, how can um, 
certain processes and you change certain processes and you get certain effects. That's weak problems, though. That's not hard. That's not the hard problem. But you, some people don't see it as a problem. Like some people don't even believe that consciousness is happening. So, well, I, I don't necessarily see it as a problem. I don't. I so far I haven't heard any justification for why consciousness is a problem, but I do believe it's happening. So. Hmm. Yeah, I have a go ahead. Go, go, go ahead, probably. Um, I, I have a question for you. <clears throat> okay, so going back in time a little bit, uh, you've used mutation quite often in this conversation. And uh, bear in mind, I'm trying to be totally respectful of your beliefs. Um, not just mutations, but also exact variables in the environment to help us adapt and evolve in a very specific order even going back further than that to the rapid expansion which refers uh, the big bang it seems to me like you do believe in miracles all of those things to come together in such a precise order would be a miracle and even when you take the most extreme depicted miracles in the bible it seems like the miracles that you guys believe in are, are much larger. So I'm just wondering if you can believe in those supernatural miracles uh, coming together in just the right order, just the right sequence, at just the right time, why you find it so hard to believe in miracles of the Bible or the creation narrative. Um, I'm going to need a little bit more clarification because personally I don't see that I've appealed to any supernatural or any miracles in my worldview. So if I'm not exactly seeing where you're coming from with that, then I would need a little bit more clarification. But um, it sounds like most of what I would would what I would say to kind of my intuition of what you're asking for would just be statistics. But yeah, I need a little bit more clarification on like what exactly are are you thinking are the miracles that I have in my well, just the just the Big Bang. It, it was a rapid expansion suddenly, but what held that rapid expansion together before the Big Bang happened? Even even that alone would be a miracle. But then put that aside, take the rapid expansion in itself after being held down and unable to expand after such a long period of time, even though time apparently didn't exist yet. I mean, you don't see those as as massive miracles? No, not really. I, I don't I don't understand what are the criteria that would make uh, the big bang a miracle well what do you how do you define a miracle if you don't mind me asking um i guess something would be a miracle if there was like um like if it couldn't be explained like natural like in a naturalistic way like it, it had to be like a supernatural intervention that would be what i would think a miracle would be would you consider something that rarely ever happens um, like if I flipped a coin and it landed on its side instead of landing heads or tails, maybe in a colloquial sense, I might refer to that as a miracle, but I would just think, you know, oh, what are the odds of that happening? I, I probably would not use the phrase miracle for that. Are you familiar with Stephen Hawking? Yeah. He said that, uh, he actually said that life is a mathematical impossibility. Why do you think he would say such a thing? Um, probably because he doesn't understand it. I don't know. Stephen Hawking didn't understand it. No, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I, I, I like it the way Grayson just tears into that ass. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I don't think any of us understand it. I'm not claiming that I understand all of the details either. But for Stephen Hawking to make a, a, a statement like that, I don't think that he's 
really understanding what he's talking about. I mean, he's he's a physicist, first of all. He's not a biologist. He's not a biochemist. And second of all, I mean, I don't want to dig that much into Hawking. He's a smart guy, but Leonard Susskind was consistently the correct one in their arguments that they had. Like, they had a whole black hole war in the 80s and 90s, and Stephen Hawking gets all the credit for that, and Leonard Susskind was the one who was right all the time. So... This is amazing, isn't it, Adam? The reason why we say that is we see a lot of people run directly to the experts, almost as if everything they say is the gospel, but you're like, nope, let's uh, let's get into that. I like that. <laughs> well, like attitude. I said, I mean, like uh, the emperor's new clothes is my favorite childhood story. I like I, I try to apply my skeptical lens equally to everyone. That's a, he just won a thousand internet cool points for that, Adam. I don't know what you got to say about that. Well, I, Brett, I pointed that out multiple times on your show that, that, um, everyone praises Stephen Hawking so much, but he lost every bet that he ever made. Like he's not that good. <laughs> like he just was constantly wrong about almost everything. Every, every like special claim that he made that he had a bet on, he lost. Ooh. Well, I think I, I I don't know like I was just ragging on him so but I think that he did he was correct about some like Hawking radiation seems to have been a correct um, so he did get some things I mean you know he well, he's a couple of like the famous figure, bets but... that he would make and stuff did he maybe he maybe there was one bet that he was right yeah I don't know if that was a bet he made but yeah like the bets you're talking about like Leonard Susskind won all of those bets and he doesn't get any credit for it I mean he's one of my favorite living physicists but. Um, you know, he doesn't get the kind of pop culture credit that he deserves for his contributions. I mean, I think that he's done a lot more than Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Oh, um, Grayson. So earlier for the um, Cambrian explosion, you you kind of you kind of reduced it to like a hard shelled body, soft shelled body mm -hmm. thing. I, I see the um I see the Cambrian problem as a pretty like major like mystery. It's very fascinating to me how you might you might know more about this than me. I don't I'm not a biology guy as much, but my understanding is every fucking phylum of animals came into existence in the Cambrian explosion or immediately after or before. Every single phylum, not another phylum has ever come after that. Or before that it's not just soft shell hard shell it's like all fucking animal phyla came on the scene just boom in one period i think that that might be a little bit of a hyperbolic statement but um because like we have i think that we have some evidence of like mollusks in uh, like the ediacaran period they Isn't that Cambrian. immediately before Cambrian, though? Yeah, it's before the Cambrian. As I'm saying, so what? Let, let me make sure my claim is clear. Almost every, almost every animal, animal. I'm talking about animals specifically. Yep. You know the difference between an animal and a plant and a yes, fucking amoeba or something. Most people don't like. We've had this conversation a thousand times. Most people don't understand the difference. So you're obviously yeah. You're talking about metazoans. We're talking about actual animals, literally, literally animals. Almost every single animal phylum, you know that it was in a phylum too. You're you're smart. So not every single one, but almost every single animal phylum 
is from the Cambrian, and the ones that aren't are immediately before Cambrian and immediately after, very shortly after, very, very, very shortly after. And that's a long ass motherfucker time ago, and there hasn't been any new phylum since. That is fascinating to me. That needs an explanation. That's not just hard shelled bodies and soft shelled bodies. There weren't even fucking animal bodies. Yeah, I mean, there were animal bodies, right? I mean, like the, the idea with the hard shell and soft shell bodies, right, is that these things would not fossilized until they had hard bodies. What was an animal body that existed before the idiocarnate or whatever you said? Um, well, Kimberella is one specimen that is there's a lot there's a bit of a debate about what kind of animal it is, but it is an animal of some kind. I think it even has bilateral symmetry. So the same kind of symmetry that you and I and all the other chordates have. But um, it it kind of looks like a very primitive mollusk, but they aren't 100% sure what it is. Um, but there are some animals before the Cambrian that do have, like, you know, we also have bilateral symmetry. So they have similar kind of body plans. But more basic. I'm not saying, I'm not saying just, I'm not saying just the, the Cambrian. Yeah. There's a period of time, the Cambrian, and immediately before it, that everything comes immediately before and immediately after. There's this little zone. Almost everything is the Cambrian itself. Yeah. There's a little bit of a precursor and a little bit of after after um, effect. Uh -huh. But outside of that, there's no new phylum. No new phyla come on the scene. Okay. So why, let me just ask you this. Why hasn't there been a new phylum since that time period? Um, because of the law of monophyly. So like every mammal is always going to produce more mammals every you know like you you can get new um like you can get new clades like created within a mother clade but you all you have all the same properties that apply to your ancestors so you never outgrow your ancestry so like um not true well then it's, it's the the law of monophyly so it's a biological like we, we law. can't go live in under the ocean right yeah, but you still have all the traits that they I did. don't have all the in a cladistic sense of the word. Humans are still fish. I don't have scales. I I can't live in the ocean. Yeah, but those are not criteria of what like morphologically makes something a fish. That's not a phylum. Right. So what I'm saying though is that like like in a cladistic sense, like you never outgrow your ancestry. So like of course we do. <laughs> We have no, this, this is a this is That's a fundamental better than the fish in the theory of evolution called the law of monophyly. Right, and it's sort of silly because we obviously do become. I don't other. think so because we, we aren't still just scaly fish living in an ocean. We are very different now. In a cladistic sense of the word, you and I are still fish, like That's not in a colloquial sense that like we That's would normally be referring to the these distinction things. of how you're classifying the like you're where you're going to draw the so I'll, I'll look i'll give you an example from even before the cambrian right so the very first eukaryotic cells these are single cells okay yeah. but all of the criteria that distinguished them as eukaryotic cells still apply to us today we are still eukaryotes just like they are so we haven't outgrown our ancestry at all from the point when we were single cells we're still the same kind of cell that they were that just sounds really dumb to me because you've been sitting here for over an hour talking about how humans have outgrown their ancestry to have all these special traits. <laughs> no, see, we haven't outgrown our ancestry to have any of those traits. Like we like the 
single clade has differentiated into like two varieties within that clade. But those those varieties, like they can have novel traits. You can have new clades developed like by branching from previous clades, but that doesn't mean that there are no longer so are you, previous clade. Do you share you share a common ancestor with a amoeba? Sure, yeah. Are you an amoeba? No, but we're both eukaryotes. Okay. Which so our single our, our ancestor was a eukaryote. But you're well, not, not mine. Yes, yours. <laughs> but you 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 get my point. You are not an amoeba. You're a eukaryote, but you're not yes, an amoeba. Yes, because I'm not that same variety of eukaryotes as an amoeba is. Organism. But we are both still like eukaryotes, like our ancestor. We outgrow our ancestry in the sense that we are no longer single-celled retard organisms. But we're the same kinds of cells. Like that's why we have an outgrown oh, yeah. our ancestry. Yeah, yeah. So like the differentiating the criteria that makes something a eukaryote are not single cell or multi-cell. You can have single cell or multi-cell eukaryotes. So the all the criteria that define something as a eukaryote or define something as a fish mm. or define something as a primate, we still fit all those criteria to classify as a fish, a primate and a eukaryote. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, in, in your opinion, why is it that that would have to absolutely, beneath any shadow of doubt, point to a common ancestor over a common creator? Because I think that this approach allows us to make predictions that a common creator uh, argument doesn't allow us to make. So we can make accurate predictions based on this model that you can't make accurate predictions with a common designer model. I would disagree. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Adam. We're just sorry, real quick. Um, before we get too far from it, what was the um? You said there was a phylum that was before the Idiocarian. Do you remember what it was, Grayson? Guys, real like quick, we got Rob UK in the room. I wanted to say welcome to the room. Well, well, well. What up, Rob? Okay. Um, you said ahead, there was a phylum. Continue on the conversation. Hey, my friends. Hi. How's it going? Going pretty good, but you need to do something with your... Uh, can you go into your settings and get the echo cancellation on? I'm hearing duck noises back there. I, I thought I was starting to evolve or something. I'm kidding. It's a joke. I, I'm a funny guy. So, Grayson, <laughs> maybe, you, maybe I misheard you. Were you saying that there's a, a new animal phylum that shows up outside of the Cambrian, like to like at a totally different time period. So I was pointing to the to the to the species, the specimen Kimberella, which is I'm like a very basal mollusk or phylum. Like that's the entire like top down body plant, like the whole that's like the biggest yeah. that's what's so fascinating to me is the 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 mainstream sort of standard Darwinian explanation is that we have these slow gradual changes and they get something that goes from like a, a five-parted like starfish plan to something more like a fish or something. Those are wildly different ch changes. Well, gradualism has not been the mainstream conception since the 70s. But we see every animal body plan show up all at the same sort of that that same Cambrian era right before and right so after. So like which so, which phylums are you talking about? All here? animals. Like arthropods that. and chordates? Or all like animal phyla. Every single one. Could you give my understanding is every single animal phylum? 
Could you all give examples? All of them. All right, hold on one second, Mr. Austin Jones. I don't know if you're standing near a jet engine or something, but can you fix your microphone over there, sir? Yeah, I actually shouldn't have joined. That was a mistake. I'm actively in the car, uh, and I entered it in so that I could hear in real time instead of the delay. I'm just going to leave and go back to YouTube. Well, the reason why you got delay is you got to close out of the browser whenever you come in. That way it doesn't echo on you. No, I'll see no. you whenever you get that fixed. All right. Sorry about that, folks. I didn't mean to interrupt the conversation. I'm just trying to make sure that people know that we're they're not Patrick Swayze ghost. We do see them. Grayson, I might I might be wrong on this, but let, let me just ask you this. If what I'm what if even if I'm mistaken, if that is true, isn't that fascinating? Like, shouldn't there be like, isn't that something to look into? I find that interesting at the very least, if that's true. Um. I mean, I guess, uh, sure. But I mean, I think that like the sort of nested hierarchical pattern of differentiation that we see, um, I, I think that the Cambrian fits pretty nicely into that. I mean, um, like well, once you have like, a differentiation sure. between phylum, you're not going to get a crossover again. Like those things are going to differentiate within each of their phylum. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really understand what the big, you know, are you, familiar, are you familiar with Darwin's dilemma, they call it? Um, no, I haven't heard that. So this is that's what this is. This was in um, when Darwin first wrote about all of this. This was one of the major problems, he says, that is a problem with his his theory. Is that right, if later that was on, before we even discovered the Ediacaran period, before the Cambrian. Like, well, that was only really we didn't start getting a lot of Ediacaran models until like the 20th century. But that stuff is still immediately before the Cambrian. Yeah, but there was like a... So there's stuff know. immediately before and immediately but, after. But there's very good reasons why we would not expect to see multicellular animal life much before then. I know, but why wouldn't we see a new phylum later on? Well, because like we do see differentiations later on. Like we see birds arise later on. We're just not, not classifying those as a phylum. Why do we see so out of all of the animal body plans, we see them all at once in this one period. And then after that, we never see a new body plan ever again. Because like I said, the, the way that evolution works is descent with modification. So you have to modify the pre-existing distinct body plans. Yeah. Well, why would, if you already have a body plan, right? Like mm -hmm. then there, why would you get a, like a fundamentally different kind of body plan after that? Like, the um, in the Ediacaran period, we actually see body plans that don't correspond to any body plans we have currently. Like we have like radial symmetry, we have bilateral yeah, yeah. symmetry, like we do, like where we, our symmetry is like on on two twofold. But in the Ediacaran, we see threefold symmetry patterns, and no living organism today has threefold symmetry. So there are body plans that were kind of like the Ediacaran was like this big experimental kind of area where we see body plans that don't exist at all today. So there was like a big experiment in body plans. And then by the Cambrian, you kind of have the ones that work coming to the fore. And then since then, I mean, I mean, we've had most of life is derived from like those body plans from the Cambrian. So evolution just that part of evolution just stopped at that point. It just never there's no more no new phylum. There's just 
Uh, uh, look, Adam, I think Adam accidentally clicked out of his browser. He's done that before. Okay. Well, I don't know if there's like a, you know, that's, you know, we have animals, we have plants. How come we're not making new domains of life? I mean, that's just because like the way that like this works where you're going to have continual branches, you're never going to go back and have another fundamental branch at the very beginning. You continue to have branches and branches off of those branches, but we don't call those phylum. That's just not the word that we use. I mean, we would use the word clades and we do continuously see new clades being formed. Like today we see clades that formed recently, like just because you're using like the word phylum, you could say the same with domains or kingdoms or families, but Really, what you're asking about is the creation of new clades, which we do actually absolutely still continue to see. Adam, as well as uh, Proverbs, did you guys make it back? You got me nervous for a minute there. I thought you guys got raptured up. I was like, why not me too? I don't know what happened, Brad. It just booted me right after it booted Adam. I'm sorry, Adam. Is your technology working over there? Or do you have some kind of problem? Um, I just got a message that said, check your inter internet, but it went right back. I have no idea what that is. I'm sorry, you gentlemen are having that issue. So Grayson, I, we can move on to another topic, but I just, I feel like I've asked a lot of people this question and I feel like I thought that you got what I was getting at. I think you do kind of get what I'm getting at. And most people don't even like, most people just don't know enough about it to understand the distinction. Right, but, but I'm just saying, like, there. Your, why your would you once you be have phylum today? If huh? like how we define phylum are well, how the does groups a new phylum that, arise? Huh? How does a new phylum arise in the first place? Like went speciation. We went from distance. none to all of them in a very brief period of time. From none to all of them. I mean, there you still had like it's because of the designation of what a phylum is that you're getting caught up on. But if you're just thinking about these things as clades, then like if you're familiar with clades and cladistics, I don't think that there's any grand mystery going on here. Okay, so I have a question. Um, over the course of the past two hours, and I mean this with all due respect, you have admitted multiple times that you just don't have the answers. And... I would say you seem very intelligent. I would probably put you up on the same type of pedestal as these great minds that lead the scientific field. So um, I would take you as an authority on it that science really doesn't have all the answers. Do you find that at all concerning? Because I know as me as a Christian, I can answer all these questions um, from the origins of our species all the way to modern day. Um, there's no part in our human history where I have to say we don't have the answers. Um, I, I find comfort in that. Do you find a lack of comfort in not having the answers to accompany these extravagant claims? Um, not really. I mean, at this point, I'm pretty existentially comfortable with not having answers. And, you know, sometimes questions can be almost more exciting um obviously like if if i had an option of like finding out all the answers i would obviously take that but um no i don't need answers so badly to the point where i would accept answers without what i would consider to be sufficient evidence so i i i haven't got to that point i don't like 
I'm okay with dying without all the answers. So. Okay. I mean, I find that, you know, sad, but at the same time, I can understand. At least you're honest about it. Um, the other thing is, is you seem very intellectual in the way that you're willing to challenge what's known as evidence. You're willing to look at multiple sides. Why is it different for you when it comes to creation versus evolution? I guess, why is it different when it pertains to our origins? How come you have been unwilling to investigate the claims of the scriptures to counter that to what you've learned in science to come to an actual knowledge? Um, well, I don't know if I would necessarily accept the premise of that. I mean, I do think that I've, you know, I expose myself a lot to, well, that sounds wrong, but I expose myself to a lot of creationist content. <laughs> I, I listen to their arguments and I try to see if they make sense. I research them. I look at the rebuttals to them. And like, I, I do consider that I generally weigh the arguments for these things. And I just, I mean, I respect, I, I respect that. But even with these great minds that defend creationism, even Kent Hovind, I consider one of the greatest minds of creationism, they're still flawed human beings, whereas the scripture is infallible. So why haven't you gone directly to the text source? You know, these these great minds of creationism, they're like a Stephen Hawking's. Uh, they have these great answers, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're accurate. Why would you not go to the information itself? I mean, I'm I'm familiar with uh, with the Bible. I mean, it's not like I've read the whole thing cover to cover, but it's not like I've like willfully avoided ever learning or reading anything about them. I mean, through my debates or conversations with creationists, I think I've been exposed to a lot of what the Bible says. And I just I just haven't seen the evidence that what it's saying is actually true. If you don't mind me asking, why do you believe that it's over for you whenever you die? Um, it just was what makes the most sense for me. I mean, I don't really believe that there was anything before I was born. Um, and since I do believe that ultimately it's the, like what I am, my consciousness, my awareness, whatever you want to call it, my soul, if, if that's a term that you prefer, I believe that that is an emergent property that's being actively created by the processes in my brain. So logically, whenever those processes stop upon my death, then I would also cease to exist. Yeah, but you don't actually believe that. I recognize the quote of what you're talking about. Mark Twain, I believe it is. I My death will be like before I was even born. I'll know of nothing and all this. But if what you're saying is true, that you, your ancestors were, you know, snakes, wolves, and sheep, and vipers, and all this, that you came from that, then your existence came through many, many different forms. Wouldn't you agree? Um, no, I wouldn't necessarily think of any of my ancestors as a part of my existence. So, I mean, my ex existence subjectively began when I was born. But it's you completely know. dependent upon your ancestors. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, just like I'm I'm dependent on the doctors and nurses that gave that, that delivered me at the hospital. But that doesn't mean that I came from them. So what happens? Uh, just a personal question. You believe that in some at some point in time, the universe is going to go through some period where we will be wiped out. Humanity yes. will non-exist. So you do believe at some time the Earth has a time limit to it, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there will be a point where it's physically or technologically possible for us to 
travel to other universes to escape our universe. But yes, eventually all of the protons in this universe will decay. So our time is numbered. Wouldn't that, from your point of view, though, mean that every effort, every work, every search for truth, all this, in the end for you, from your position, there's there's no point to any of it then? Why? I mean, let me give you an example of something. Let's say I put a thousand books in front of you and I say, you have this many days to complete all the homework, but at the end of it all, I'm going to set it on fire. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you, would you not give me the middle finger and say, well, I'm not doing all this work. I'm not going to do all this. If I'm going to, you're just going to burn it all anyway. What, what gives you the motivation to continue? Sure. So I would say that, yes, I am a nihilist when it comes to like the question of like ultimate meaning and everything, but I would say I'm an optimistic nihilist. So like I said, I do kind of leave the possibility open that maybe it would be possible to escape this universe and go to a different universe before it decays. But, you know, even if that's not possible and even if all this is ultimately doomed, I do think that it's ultimately still worth living. I mean, to take your example, I'm going to do a different example within the homework, but I hope that you'll agree that it's still analogous and you'll see why I'm changing it from the homework. But if we do the same example, right, you have like a dance floor and you say, you know, you can dance however much you want. We'll play music. But after, you know, five minutes, we're going to burn the dance floor. No more dancing possible. Like why would I dance? Well, I would say that, you know, the point of dancing is to dance. I mean, it, it fundamentally in the act of dancing is the justification for it because I enjoy dancing. So that's why I chose, you know, to change it from homework because nobody enjoys homework. So I had to change it to something that was an enjoyable process and activity to do. But so I find the process of living to be worth living because it's fundamentally an enjoyable experience or like, there are things to enjoy about it or like, you know, I like my life quite a lot. And like, even though it's limited in its amount of time, I'm still, you know, capable in this moment to enjoy this moment. And I kind of feel like, yeah, life is like the purpose of life is to live. And the purpose of dancing is to dance. I like that analogy. I'll work with that. So for the, the temporal stimulation, you might as well, you're here, you're just going to go ahead and do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, um, yeah, I, I still definitely enjoy living. What uh, what stops you from doing negative things in order to benefit or take advantage over other humans? I'll give you an example. You're told that you're going to be evicted from your home. Your family's going to be dropped out. But you know for a fact that there's a little old lady that lives up on a hill way off in the woods that nobody even hardly knows about. You know because you explore nature every once in a while. And she just so happens to have a treasure chest filled with like collectible gold and money and all this. Inheritance that she for some reason didn't give to her grandkids. What's stopping you from going up there and going into the dance? Take her out. Nobody would know and take the money. I mean, fundamentally, I don't think I would be able to uh, to really look myself in the mirror if I did that. I don't think that, uh, like, I still have a sense of morality and things that are right and wrong. I can still have a sense of empathy, right? I can understand what it is like for that woman, and I would not want to cause her harm or suffering. So, you know, I, and I just, I, I don't think I could you know, I have a certain perception of myself and the kind of standards that I hold myself and my behaviors to. And I would just, 
not really like myself if I did things like that. Um, but why? So she, she's nothing more than chemicals. She's nothing more than stardust. She's going to die anyway. But she's still but, having her own subjective experience. Like I, I acknowledge the fact that things can be subjectively real. So like, you know, things that may, might necessarily not have a physical basis or be physically real can still be real in a subjective sense. And I do think that subjective experience and subjective realities are something that's worth um, like respecting. But your family is going to be evicted. You're going to be at a disadvantage. You're going to be cold and hungry on the street. Yeah. But and I'm sure every, there are ways. You've done, every, can... you've done every positive thing you could possibly think of in order well, to survive. I'm sure that there are different options open to me. Then it's not like I just have to either be homeless or rob this old lady. I think that there are probably other options available. <laughs> Sure, sure. But it's kind of a hypothetical, and you know what those are meant to do, kind of narrow it down with the options on that. So it's down to like a me versus this old lady? It's it's one of us or, or none of us kind no, of it's, a, it's about basically putting something that is an obstacle out of your way and uh, seeking out the benefit and the advantage. Yeah, well, I'm okay with that as if, as if nobody gets hurt or suffers, but, you know... If this old woman is going to suffer, then I think that that's wrong. But there's ways to be able to take care of a little old woman without causing her much suffering. Why does the suffering even matter? Well, because I think suffering is bad. I don't like to suffer. It's kind of like the golden rule, you know? I hear you. It sounds like even though you refer to yourself as a nihilist, you're a very altruistic person. How did this well, happen? I try, to, I try to, you know, condone with my moral principles. Well, that, that is interesting. Where do you think that this comes from, that you're willing to sacrifice yourself and your own well-being for some old lady you don't even know? Where does that come from? Um, a mix of culture and biology. So there's actually some really interesting experiments. I think they did this with naked mole rats, and they they had a, 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 an ingenious test. I don't remember the whole experimental setup, but they tested if the mole rat was willing to sacrifice itself for another. And they found that in the case of siblings, one mole rat would not sacrifice itself for one sibling, which has 50% of the same DNA as it. But for two or more siblings, the mole rat would. And then when you take cousins, where you have one eighth genetic similarity with all of your cousins, for five cousins, one naked mole rat would not sacrifice itself. But for eight or more cousins, than it would. So there's a biological kind of decision making that's going on here on some kind of deep, like instinctual level that causes you to, you know, put others above yourself under certain circumstances. So that mixed with my culture that I grew up in um, would kind of dictate my sense of right and wrong and my moral compass. How would that work, though, in survival of the fittest or selfish gene? Yeah, so that's why there was actually a correspondence between genetic similarity and that, because um, when there's when there's only one sibling, right, if I sacrifice myself for one sibling, then they only had 50% of my DNA. So only 50% of my DNA lives on because I've died. But in a, when there's two siblings, each of them has 50% of my DNA. So the equivalent is about, you know, 100% of my DNA lives on through my two siblings. So if there's more than two siblings, then it's actually more 
advantageous to pass on my genetic material to save my three siblings than to save myself. So it's like a very interesting kind of like calculation of fractions of like what, like what decision on my behalf, like who do I have to save in order to pass on more genetic material than just my individual uh, genes, like just my individual like progeny. Let me throw another hypothetical for you. And we're going to take the bond and the relationship of siblings out of the equation. And unfortunately, this hypothetical I'm going to ask you has happened millions of times, unfortunately, on this earth. So it is a realistic hypothetical. You're walking down the street. You're minding your own business. You notice that there's a woman across the street where she's not paying attention. She's trying to get groceries out of a car. Her little five-year-old, whom you don't know anything about, or this woman, decides that the kid sees you and decides to run across the street. Maybe you've got something on it wants to point at or go goo-goo-ga-ga at you. You see a car coming. Now, would you jump out in front of the road and save that child, even though there's a good probability you're going to get hit by the vehicle and killed or disabled? Would you do it? Yeah, I would. Why? Well, I don't want to see a kid get killed. <laughs> Just because of the experience of seeing a kid get killed, you would destroy your own life and your yeah. ability to reproduce. My goodness. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, I haven't been in that exact scenario before, but I've been in scenarios where, like, people have been in trouble. Like, I've been on a boat and somebody's fallen off the boat, and I didn't really think about it. I just jumped in to try to get to, you know, help them. So I don't think that I would necessarily be doing any kind of advanced moralistic philosophy kind of thinking and a I have a logic tree to it I would just kind of see a baby in trouble and I would just sort of you know kind of just react on instinct I don't think I would really think about it much or have to have some kind of oh do this do that like weigh my decision you know real quick real quick let me welcome Ernest to the room Ernest is your mic working and then I'm gonna let Rob uh go into us rob can you do me a favor your microphone's yep. really loud i don't know what the deal is with that can you step away from it about 10 feet <laughs> well, yeah. and also okay, gentlemen guys. i uh it's going on almost two and a half hours and i've got a very beautiful southern girl who's waiting on me so i'm going to make my exit but i would like the record to show that grayson both refused to murder the old woman and saved a child so extra kudo points for grayson and i hope we see you back bud Hey, thanks, man. Uh, so far, I'm really enjoying the conversation. So, uh, hello, Dave, and hello, Grayson. Yes, um, I'm glad to be part of this uh, for some time. Um, I have a question for Grayson. Um, with the illustration that you pointed out of the dance floor, um, supposedly you feel like it's. Um, it's, it would be great, you would have a great time on said floor. But what if there was someone else who wouldn't enjoy being on that said floor and uh, would rather enjoy killing people? Wouldn't he, wouldn't he feel like it, it's in his right to, uh, to do what he likes uh, and rather than follow the crowd? I mean, you can do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't impinge on anybody else's rights or doesn't create suffering for others. So, you know, if killing people is his hobby, then that's pretty wrong. And I would be advocate for stopping that. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so where does where do you think this idea of uh, of not impinging on others' freedom or like on others' responsibility comes from? If uh, if according like if you believe in evolution, yeah. it's the survival of the fittest. So yeah. So how did we dynamics. go from survival of the fittest towards uh, basically this principle of uh, we live as a group and we help each other out. Yeah, so groups as a whole are subject to natural selection and fitness as well. So if you have somebody in your group that's just killing other people of your group, that's not gonna benefit the group. And we actually see in nature, in social organisms, they will outcast such you know errant behavior. They'll say, nope, you're out of here. They kick them out to the curb. Um, they're not allowed to be in the group if they're going to act like that. So we see group dynamics like that and sort of these kind of group social moralities come up in, in the animal kingdom. So, Mr. Uh, if you don't mind, let me show you something real quick and I'd like to get your opinion sure. on it. Uh, let me see if I still got it here. Genes are information. They are coded information. It even looks like computer information. I mean, a, a, a chromosome is, is a great long computer tape. It's linear, it runs one-dimensional, one digital code. Um, it's not binary, it's quaternary, but apart from that, it's, it's just the same as, as computer tape. It's, it's read in, in sequence. Um, it's copied and pasted from one part of the organism to another in just the same way as, as a computer programmer would cop copy and paste um, so biology has turned into into computer science copied and pasted from one part of the organism to another in just the same way as as a computer programmer would cop copy and paste as a computer programmer would cop copy and paste so how do you feel about that is richard dawkins throwing people under the bus or what um, I think he's oversimplifying a little bit, but I would still largely agree with what he said. You believe it's like a computer program designed it and programmed it to do this? Mm, I don't necessarily think that that's what he was saying, but he was saying that it's like a code, like analogous to a computer program. All right. Why do you think he uses terms like computer program or isn't that a kind of... It kind of sounds almost like there's some simulation going on, some kind of design. Mm, maybe. I mean, I don't know what question he was responding to. Maybe he was asked a question about could you compare DNA to a computer code? Or I don't really know the context for that clip. But, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, kind of the central tenet of genetics and biochemistry is like the genetic code. So I, I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that it's a code. Uh, may I ask you a question? Yeah. Uh, um, so um, it's a personal rather question, Grayson. Do you, uh, do you ever consider the possibility of a creator like actually existing or do you think it's man-made stories? Like, do you ever consider a creator, uh, be it a, a Christian creator or, well, Christian God or something different? Um, no, I don't really spend my time thinking about that, to be honest. Because I think fundamentally, this is where the views of uh, those people who believe in creation versus those who believe in evolution 
come into the the like um, the well, basically they they can't agree on that single point because if you don't believe or like don't allow the possibility for such an entity or being to exist, your only logical option left is evolution. While on the other hand, if you allow such possibility to exist, then anything basically could be explained by uh, by this being starting from a lightning or like some simple things. So I think that evolutionists hate uh, those who believe in creation because they they tend to oversimplify kind of thing. But um, creationists uh, don't quite like the idea of everything needing to be materialistic. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever like precluded the possibility of gods or gods or like, you know, like a supernatural explanation. I don't think I've precluded that um, like as being a possibility. I just don't really spend my time like considering it or thinking about it or like I just don't spend my time thinking about that kind of stuff. Like, um, like I, yeah, I, I don't deny the possibility, but I do stick with a sort of naturalistic materialistic framework for um most of these questions so i just yeah. because just because that's um that's what's scientifically testable that's what's empirically demonstrable um but i'm not making a claim that like one day science will have the answer to every single thing like i'm sure that there probably are things that are not knowable like given the fact that we're just humans we're kind of you know, there's a limit to the kinds of experiments that we can set up, the kinds of knowledge that we can have. Like, I do think that there are limits. I don't know what they are, but I don't really think I, I don't really know if it's even possible to have all the answers. We got Great. somebody out here who uh, says something really odd. He says uh, computer code is incredibly simple. It's literally brackets of binaries and pixel art is the same concept. Well, your view is narrow. Obviously, you would need a computer designed in order to be able to transcribe the information. And then you would have to design the computer in such a way where the information actually coordinates with what is happening with the project. So I wouldn't say that's simple because I myself, I like to do coding on computer and it's not that uh, easy. It takes a long time to be able to understand and comprehend that. Adam, did you have a question? Sorry. Uh, good point, Brett. Um what was my question? Oh, Grayson. So um, did you say that you are not strictly a materialist? No, no, I am. Because I thought you were just a, a little earlier, you were saying something along the lines of you believe that some things that, you know, there's things that exist that are not necessarily physical. When you're talking about subjective experience and things like that. Yeah, I mean, like things can can exist like subjectively, but I think right. that there's still like... Um... And that's non-material, right? Or non-physical? Or would you, do you consider it's, that? I, well, it's, it's similar to the metaphor I drew earlier about like the computer software and hardware. Like the software kind of, it requires the hardware to create the software, right? The software is an emergent phenomenon of the hardware. So like, yeah, the software exists in the sense of like, in, in a limited sense, like, like the subjective experiences do exist in a subjective way, but they're ultimately based on materialistic natural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But just so the most recent thing you were saying is 
you rely on materialism and the scientific method to test it. But before that, you were saying that you believe in things that are not strictly material, not strictly physical. So why restrict it to the physical and the material if you believe in things that exist that are beyond that? Because like, um, so the things that I would believe exist that are beyond that are things that I can subjectively experience, right? Like um, that those things exist in an emergent way from the more fundamental reality of like the, the naturalistic materialistic processes. So yeah. those things are empirically demonstrable. Um, and ultimately I do think it's possible, but we're obviously not there technologically yet. So it's just a sort of, point of speculation well, but i do think it would be possible to substantiate and like kind of prove subjective experiences too if you had the right measuring devices but like so for example true. you don't have access to my subjective inner experience but i'm i think that, that it would be physically it. possible to but obviously not not but you I believe that i'm having level. inner experience right what's that you believe that i have inner experience yes and i believe that we would be able to eventually like the i believe it would be theoretically possible to but why like, do you believe that because there's no scientific materialistic basis for you believing that if you mm -hmm. only went by strict materialism you should be a solipsist right or let me make that as an open-ended question should if you if you followed strict materialism strict physicalism would it follow that you would be a solipsist or if not why would it not follow that um, can you maybe clarify a little bit like more if, about what you if mean? If you can't access what my subjective experience is, you have no scientific reason for believing that it's happening. So if you're only using materialism and you're only using physicalism, how can you justify believing in my subjective experience rather than only believing in your own which would be solipsism well, right? i think that there is evidence to show that your subjective experience is coming from your brain activity so if i just look in your brain and see that you have brain activity then yeah i mean if, if you're having brain activity that mirrors the the patterns of a conscious person i think that that's evidence that you're having a conscious experience yeah but that's just the physical part that's that doesn't show that's not showing the yeah but i don't think you can have one without the other like, I don't think that you could have the physical part without having the subjective experience part. Hmm. Like, if you were to recreate your the physical processes in your brain on a machine, then I would believe that that machine was having a, the same subjective experience that you are, if you were recreating your exact brain patterns. Uh, may okay. I ask uh, something? Do you, uh, do you think that... Uh, all the like that all the religion or like all the spiritual things they fall under the category of subjective things or do you allow for the possibility for something real or some uh, some entity uh, which we would deem like like a god or like with alternative or like in uh, like the same kind of properties uh, do you think, like, do you allow for such possibility to exist, uh, for something like this to exist and interact with us, and therefore we would see uh, the pattern uh, being uh, similar with the people or like with the individuals, and it being actually the um, 
the indicator that such thing exists? Um, I'm not precluding the possibility that like, I think kind of what you're asking about is like supernatural miracles, right? I mean, that would be a non-subjective like evidence for God or gods or whatever, right? So um, I'm not saying that those things cannot happen, but I just don't really seem that much evidence to think that they have or are happening. Okay. Uh, I would probably like formulate uh, something different. Okay. So you have, can you like uh, allow for the possibility for an entity that would be capable of um, doing miracles sure. at all? Okay. And if such entity exists, like if you allow for this possibility and then build on it, then uh, basically any creationist model would work since this being wouldn't be limited by the law the laws of uh physics that govern the universe if if such being is outside of the universe right um okay i mean for sake of argument sure mm -hmm. okay so um if such thing exists and we are able to like and some people claim to be a, to have some sort of uh, interaction with this being wouldn't it wouldn't it be uh like logical to uh, to kind of like hear about what they have to say um i guess i mean there have been like the i mean that applies to every religion though right <laughs> okay uh, if said person was, for example, uh, sentenced to death and uh, like they have a choice, you either you renounce what you have seen, had experienced, or we put you to death. Wouldn't it be a really powerful statement if uh, the person chose death rather than uh, renouncing to such possibility? There are innumerable religious martyrs in history for just about every religion like people believe these things so strongly that they have been willing to die um, for their beliefs and i i think that that occurs in just about every religion i would like to ask uh, you a question grace and you pointed out the that there's a great deal of similarities with all the religions and these ideas of god I know for you in, in some ways that just makes you think oh, there's just a lot of people who've got lots of different stories. But has it ever crossed your mind that the reason why billions of people all over the world believe in this is because they've actually had that experience that you said was so important, that engagement? The similarities shouldn't discredit it. It should tell you, wow. I mean, that's exactly why you even hold on to the view of evolution, right? Because you believe there's similarities. So why wouldn't you give the idea of a higher power the same, uh, how shall I say, uh, leniency? I think like it'd be sort of totally different, like apples and tomatoes, like differences, like genetic similarities are very different from similarities of experience. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I'm not saying that like the, you know, 4.3 billion people that believe in the Abrahamic God are not having 
subjective experiences where they are experiencing the God that they believe in. I, I'm sure that they are. I'm sure that those experiences are very real to them. Um, and I do think that subjective experiences like are, you know, real in some sense. Um, but I don't think that they're real in like an objective sense. And I don't think that like, I mean, like people are having experiences with, like I said, all kinds of religions. The Abrahamic God is, is the biggest one today, but in the past, hardly anybody believed in a monotheistic God. I mean, monotheism was not any existing in world history until like the late bronze age. So at every time before then people were having real subjective experiences where they're communing with their gods. Um, and it was very real to them and they believed it. They were willing to die for their beliefs, but nobody in the world was believing in one monotheistic God. Like, um, I mean, I don't even think that the God of like Abraham was necessarily like a monotheistic God. Like Abraham didn't really seem to say that the other gods didn't exist. He just said that they were not worthy of worship. Like his like main God was. So I don't, I don't know. I think that like the perceptions of this God per, like entity have changed over like the course of human history. Well, you've talked uh, about cultures and societies uh, basically going through their own evolving process. Has it ever crossed your mind that as these people went all over the world and all this, the fact that they had similar engagement because of their languages and the way their culture was set up, this is simply the name they gave to the higher power. You know, whether it's, you know, Ganesha or some kind of Hindu form name or something, or the Abrahamic religions call it Yahweh. Why, why would you think that there's not some kind of connection there as opposed to a disconnect? So I could point to like certain religions like the ancient Greek, ancient Canaanite, um, and ancient Indo-Europeans. And I could say, hey, there's a sky father god in all of these. There's a god of the underworld and there's a god of a sea. And those are the three main gods in these pantheons. So I could say, you know, in that similarity, a bit too much of a coincidence, shouldn't we then conclude that there's three main gods, a sea god, an underworld god, and a, and a sky god? But I would think that those similarities are just the result of them deriving from like, um, like a shared cultural heritage. Okay, so you believe that the entire human race, they're just sharing and they're connected in some way into believing that there's something higher and grander out there. Do you think it's irrational or illogical for someone to believe there's more to the universe, that there's more to us that transcends the, the meat that we were speaking about earlier? Um, I don't know, actually. I don't know how to answer that question. Um, but yes, I do think that humans have basically always believed in like supernatural deities. Um, I think that even we can see kind of the very seed of this behavior in chimpanzees, where a lot of the times when like a thunderstorm will come, uh, chimpanzees are known to treat the thunderstorm as if it were another chimp. Like it was a rival male, like it was it, like the thunderstorm was a chimpanzee and they, they like interact with it, treating it like one. So it's not like anthropomorphizing. It's like chimpomorphizing, I guess. But I think that that's kind of the very fundamental place where a lot of these like the religion and the spiritual understanding comes from is like, you know, you see like if we didn't know anything about what stars or the sun were, I mean, 
it would be very easy to anthropomorphize them and think of the sun as an actual entity in the sky that is making decisions and that's doing all these things. Or, you know, you think of the God of the forest or the God of that mountain. And it's, it's very easy to apply human characteristics and kind of attribute personalities to, to these forces of nature that are like so awe-inspiring around us, especially when we didn't have any scientific explanation to like understand these things at all. I'm going to ask you one more hypothetical and then let Adam and Rob and uh, Ernest get back in their conversation. I don't sure, want to sure. leave them completely out. I'm enjoying my conversation with you, but I want to make sure everybody gets to participate. My last question for you is this. Um, if you had the ability, let's say tomorrow you woke up and you found that there was a, a box in your room with a button on it. And if you push this button, every religion in the world and every belief in the concept of a higher power or God is wiped from existence as though it was never there. Would you do so? Would you push the button and end it all so you could have your naturalistic uh, views and world and everybody agrees? Yeah, definitely. You'd push the button and wipe it all out? Yeah. Okay. Well, at least you're intellectually honest. Go ahead, guys. Yeah, based on that, Grayson, uh, how's my volume there anyway? Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, based on that, then how did what was the point in time and how did the evolution of belief come about? And also, when in the evolutionary timeline did the um concept of guilt and hindsight evolve? And why okay. don't pimps have that, those feelings of guilt and hindsight? Yeah, I would think that um, there are probably animals that have like similar feelings of guilt and hindsight um, that humans would have. So I think that those would probably predate the evolution of humans. Yeah, but um, there's no scientific evidence for that. That's just speculation. Yeah, that's why I said I, I would think. I mean, I would probably point to other intelligent, sociable animals like elephants or something. I mean definitely seems like it would make sense to me that they would display things like guilt and hindsight. Um, but I, again, I, I haven't seen any specific studies that we're trying to look or measure this. I don't know exactly how you would measure things like guilt or hindsight, but I don't really think it's like a big stretch of an imagination to imagine like an elephant having guilt and hindsight. Um, like if, uh, like if an elephant was responsible for the death of, its child or another elephant or something, I would very easily think that it would have some kind of, oh, you know, like some kind of conception of that it's the one that is the one at fault and it would kind of feel that sensation of guilt. Um, but again, that's just my own speculation. So, um, but I don't think that it would be, I think it would be something that would predate human evolution. And then your other question was about, um, Sorry, what was it? The guilt and the hindsight and then, um, oh yeah, the belief, the evolution of belief. So like I said, when we see kind of chimpanzees exhibiting sort of like seed-like very basal behavior of attributing kind of natural phenomenon to have per personalities like a chimp or like a human or whatever, I think that that's kind of the seed for where this mostly came from. So it would probably predate Homo sapiens. It would like I would think that Neanderthals um, and Denisovans would have some kind of belief system, kind of, some kind of spiritual animal like um, animalism kind of system where 
you know, there would be like forest deities or mountain or sky or sun gods. Like, you know, they would kind of impart human characteristics to natural phenomenon. And I think that that's probably been existing for, you know, probably longer than humans have. But that seems to be more of a physical response to a, a natural threat rather than looking at this as a real living entity with a with a conscience that it can be that it can debate with or communicate with well i mean every I mean? people group on earth pretty much believes in some kind of personification of natural phenomenon like you don't find a hunter-gatherer tribe that's just all atheists like you'll usually find a hunter-gatherer and like they'll say you know, oh, the sun goes here at night and he does this and the sun is has this personality or, you know, these animals have these personalities or the this certain forest is like doesn't like X, Y and Z. Like they'll be attributing those kinds of things to just their natural environment around them. And that's kind of the basal state of like religious belief and the idea of gods. I went to go grab me some more cold water and I got to thinking about something I was wanting to ask you. Um, earlier, just a moment ago before I took my break, you had said that if you could push a button, you'd wipe out all religion. Why do you think that Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin also felt the same way? And that's not an insult towards you, but you know that they thought taking out the churches, ending the Judaism and the Jews and all that was a good idea. Do you think that that was a positive thing? They didn't have a button to push. They had to do it manually. Yeah, so I think in the cases of figures like a Stalin or a Hitler, they were in opposition of like the different religions of their era because they saw that as an obstacle to their power, right? Like they wanted to be the sole source of like, you know, they wanted their institution, the state, their administration to be the sole organizer of society. And they didn't want any challenges to that power. And religion and religious institutions offer like uh, a potential challenge to their political authority because the authority of God and the church is oftentimes perceived by the populace as a higher authority than they are. So I think that for them, where their main goal is to acquire and hold on to power, they were mostly seeing religions as an obstacle for their rise and maintain of control over power. So um, Grayson, based on that then, um, religion is actually an evolutionary benefit. Because it oh yeah, stops, it definitely is. It stops the, so you're, you want to negate an evolutionary benefit that's, that man now has. Yes. Uh, man, no, wait, 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 if, if I could just explain, if I could just, just clarify just, that. Just really one quick, second, Grayson. You say that it's a benefit to humanity, but you were willing to wipe it out five minutes yes. ago. Yes. So I want to just clarify when I was saying it was a benefit is because it is a um, like social coherent. So it it like people that can share religion together, obviously, can socially cohere into larger groups then like, um, you know, if, if you're only going to get into group with people that, you know, you're limited, you can only know like a couple hundred people. And so you're going to have strangers. And if you're not willing to be in a group with strangers, um, then us as humans are not going to be able to accomplish very many big grand things because you can only act in a small group of a couple hundred. The thing that allows us humans to act in groups of thousands and millions 
is by having shared identities. And religion is a big source of this shared identity that has allowed, you know, these large groups of humans to do large scale things. So I think that there are other sources for identity, like, you know, I guess nationalism is another one, but I'm not a big fan of nationalism either. But I, I think that that's another example of getting a benefit from a social cohesive. So I think that there are other ways that we can have a socially cohesive society that don't involve like, um, like really, I mean, my biggest problem with religion, I don't really care if, if people like believe in God or gods or, or whatever. It's mostly the, like, um, like pushing like what I would label as pseudoscience or pseudoscientific claims or being, you know, um, against like, science because of religious values that's what i don't really like hey grayson um, can i can i ask you real quick just like a rapid a rapid fire question okay okay um just tell me out of these things whether you believe in it or not um nebular hypothesis sure i think it sounds uh, plausible black holes absolutely um dark matter um mm, there's evidence to support it like gravitational lensing but i don't know if i i don't even know what i would be believing in like dark matter doesn't even have a, a good definition for what it is so it's not like dark, it's like let me, let me clarify, dark matter as like an exotic form of matter i don't know i mean i i like thinking about it but i don't even know what it would be you know if, if there's not even a model for what it is like how can i believe it but you believe in the lambda cdm model which has dark matter in the title yeah yeah like yeah. i mean dark what like, about dark we energy? have evidence to suggest that there is something out there that's not interacting with light but it is interacting via gravity so there's something that's causing that effect and it's described as dark matter, but the, the the Lambda CDM model does not actually describe what dark matter is. May uh, point What about out. dark energy? Well, dark energy is just the, again, we don't know what it is. It's just like the cosmological constant variable that's causing the expansion of the universe. But we don't know what it physically is. Like, we don't have any description for it. So you do believe in it or you don't? Well, something is causing the expansion of the universe. We call that dark matter. So, yes, I believe that there is something causing the expansion of the universe. Right. If And that's all I would call dark matter. Inflation, inflationary cosmology and inflationary period of expansion. Well, no, because dark matter is still currently causing the universe to expand faster. Like it's accelerating in its expansion. So something is causing that because... Like, no, Grayson, what I'm asking you is, do you believe that in the history of in the history in the past history, there was an inflationary period? Mm, I mean, I believe that there's some evidence to support it, but I don't necessarily like believe it. Like, so you're skeptical of the land. You were you were when you when you started out earlier, it sounded like you believed pretty solidly in the land CDM model that just the standard. I think model. it's our best model, but obviously it's not the full picture because we don't have a system for quantum gravity yet so as long as we don't okay, have good. quantum gravity our systems are only going to be like our models are only going to be approximations so what about virtual particles 
I take some umbrage with the con <laughs> with the conception of virtual particles. Um, you're you're awesome, Jason. Huh? You're awesome. So you. like, I understand why virtual particles were proposed, and I understand their utility as a mathematical model. But do I actually believe that the background energy is forming these particles that are then like colliding um, and back into non-existence out of nothing? Mm, no, not necessarily. I have my own kind of conceptions of like what this background quantum uh, vacuum energy is and what it's composed of and what is explaining these virtual particles. I kind of think of them as like television static, almost like ripples of energy that are not fully formed into particles yet, but can be modeled based on virtual particles. So I kind of find virtual particles as like a mathematical model that is like an approximate and like accurate description, but probably not the full picture of what's really going on. If that makes any sense. I wanted to point yeah. something out, uh, if, if you're okay with it. Um, so when you said that uh, that you want to, you would press the button to wipe out all the religions. Um, I think uh, that uh, that you would have. Like that would be solely based on the assumption that all these religions are not correct, right? Yep. Okay. So uh, the thing is, I think that uh, that where the conflict lies between like those that uh, that believe in some sort of deity and those who don't is you could put everyone who believes in some sort of deity in some particular category and the one uh, the people who don't believe in anything at all that they, they believe that it's all man-made basically so man-made god if you actually go down the tra uh, the trail of god making uh men so if you th that's what i was saying about like uh allowing the real possibility then uh you wouldn't be able to kind of like press this button uh, to wipe out all religions, really. So you could, but but that's hypothetical. Uh, would you be willing to uh, to go down the trail? Like, would you be okay if I lead you down some like a, a series of questions on uh, on like presenting a worldview that would be uh, not based on a materialistic view, but rather on uh, an idea that there is a creation uh, there is a creator of some sort are you just asking if i'm open to that or uh, would you be open if i kind of try to guide you down this uh, aisle sure uh you might want to like um either get closer to the mic or up your volume otherwise you're a little bit soft on the mic but sure yeah i mean i'm open to it yeah, Ernest, it is difficult to hear you. I was actually going to point that out. I think Grayson, for getting into that first. Also, you seem to be moving around a lot, hitting your desk like a like a rabid ape over there. Is there any way that can be stopped so we can understand you better? <laughs> hey, uh, Nicholas, how you doing? I always get on to people if the microphone's bad. Grayson's got a great microphone. You're going to have to later on give a link to wherever you bought that and give it to these people that have been coming to the room. Well, I have a confession. It's literally just my laptop microphone. What? The one no. that came with my laptop. 
what is that? Some alien software? Or something? What you <laughs> it's got going just on uh, it's a MacBook. Yeah, some of those mics oh. are pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he's got a good mic. Do I sound okay? You sound good. You got some? Have you been listening out there to the conversation? Is there anything you'd like to throw out there? And before you do, um, I feel kind of bad here because we got one non-believer, and I'd like to have other non-believers actually come in and participate in the conversation. I feel like it's kind of a, a triple threat match, and I like WWE, but it makes me feel like there's like unfairness going on. So if we could balance it out, let's get some more skeptics in here. Come on. Go ahead. Oh, bring it on. I can handle all of the creationists. Oh, well, actually, I, I, in all seriousness. No, I, I, I do appreciate your courage and uh, your respectfulness. Yeah. We we don't get that very often. Honestly, I don't think that it's been like unfair or anything. I mean, I, I don't think anybody's been interrupting or talking over anybody else. So I think it's been a good discussion. Well, actually, I, I was listening to some of what he was talking about with dark matter and and all that other stuff and yeah i mean there is some science behind that i mean when you look at the mathematics and explaining your gravitational pull and you know i mean honestly i don't think it really disagrees with creation because god created a fully mature universe a fully mature everything so that's why i'm not really arguing that much if you look at some of my comments you know and i actually respect some of his honesty and actually saying yeah i mean it's a theory and yeah it's it's the best one we have you know i mean so I mean, I don't think all the theories necessarily agree, uh, disagree with creation and, and, and God, you know, because, I mean, Adam was fully formed. He was fully mature. I mean, the earth was fully mature. I mean, so it's not necessarily against creation to a point. I do feel there is a lot of science behind a lot of it. You know, I, I actually went to Embry-Riddle and Aeronautical University and, and studied in aeronautical science and went into the evolution classes and all that stuff. You know, personally, I still think that God is behind it all. When you look at the numbers and the mathematics and how everything lines up and how perfectly things are in the solar system and where we are in the universe and, and all that other stuff. I mean, it's just like they say, this is why this whole multiverse thing is so important these days is everything and the numbers are so perfect. There has to be multiple other universes because the random chance of it all lining up the way that it is well, the only way it really makes sense is that there's multiverses and that we just happen to be in one that all the numbers line up in. And that's why I think they're pushing all this, you know, stuff with the heroes and the multiverse and, you know, trying to, I mean, I'm not saying that all the scientists believe that and, you know, but, and like I said, there is a lot of math behind it and science behind it. And that's why I'm not really arguing with him. And just Nick, Nick, you mind if I ask you a couple of questions and you know, I believe in God and oh, yeah, I realize yeah. that you're a very passionate theist yourself. Would you uh, would you say that multiverses would act under the same laws as our universe, or would they have different laws based upon their rate and what's going on with that? Number two, with what you said as well, you said that you you don't have a problem with dark matter. Can you explain why God would create this exotic matter in the first place, and what is the point of it? Well, here's the thing. Dark matter is actually just a way to... They don't even know what it is. It's just to explain how the gravitational forces and how things are being pulled and moved. And when they look at the matter that they can see that they're able to calulate, it doesn't match no, up. No, 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 no. You, you misheard my question. I'm asking no, no, you. 
Yeah. I'm asking you from God's point of view, why would have he created this uh, dark matter and made it a part of the elements? What do you think the point of it is? Oh, man. Yes, theists do get on to other theists, Grayson. <laughs> because he's a powerful God. Because, you know, the more we look and study into the universe, the more amazing he is. I mean, if I understood everything about God, he wouldn't be a very powerful God. And well, I mean, yeah, that's not what I'm asking, Nick. I know God's powerful enough to create anything that is logically possible. But what I'm asking you is, what was the point of, what do you think the point of creating it in the first place, dark matter? Well, I don't necessarily, I don't even know if dark matter is created. I know that's that's a term that we use to explain what we can't necessarily explain in the universe, right? So what I'm saying is when we look out there, and we try to calculate the planets, the stars, and the things that we can see, it doesn't match up to the mathematics to show the gravitational pull and the effects of the universe, and they call that dark matter. There has to be some kind of matter out there that we can't see to explain why we see these gravitational pulls and stuff. And like I said, to me, it's just to show how powerful and magnificent of a God that he is. And so it's not even a matter of why did God do this? I mean, I think it just shows how special we are in the universe. How special. Well, the, re the reason why I asked that, Nicholas, is I was curious on how you would define or what your view is on what dark matter actually is. I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're still uh, infantile in our understanding of this uh of this concept it's kind of like a, a band-aid in order to fill in a lot of gaps of the universe Correct. would you agree with that grayson um i guess more or less sure i mean it, we're trying to explain well, we observations can. that we wouldn't be able to explain otherwise all right you guys go ahead i'm gonna hit my be right back and let you guys have a discussion for a little bit hopefully everybody gets their mic working so they don't sound like they're two thousand leagues under the sea <laughs> Well, like I said, what I'm By saying way, is it, my it, mic better at all? Oh, yeah, much better now. All right. <laughs> what I'm saying is to me, it just shows to me, it just shows how powerful and how amazing our God is. You know, like I said, we can't if I could explain everything that he's done, he's not a very powerful God. If I can, you know, see it all, explain it all, understand it all, then then I should be God. You know what I mean? And, and so the more that we study and learn and that's why I'm not. I'm so far from anti-science. Science is awesome to me. And, and I don't, you know, I, I, to me, as I look at things and I see how designed things are and how created they're and how the numbers work out and how far our planet is from the sun. And I mean, there's just so many things. That's why they do the multiverse because they can't explain, oh, wow, there's just too many things lined up that make this universe so perfect that make our gal like, make everything so perfect that you know they use inflation to explain how it looks like it's all spreading out from one center well i mean when you take those things away and you look at just the basics it does look like we're at the center i don't necessarily believe that i mean i'm sorry i, I haven't seen it all i, I mean that, but inflation could be true you know and all that stuff so I, i'm not necessarily arguing with that but it is to me it's just amazing and it just shows i don't want to worship a god that i understand everything about to me that's just he's a sad god then no offense i mean it's just so basically yeah. what i've been hearing um is kind of the whole fine-tuning argument mostly. yes fine-tuning yes yes yeah um with fine-tuning i often like yeah you can get around it by like posing the multiverse sure sure but without posing a multiverse i also like i don't i've never really understood the fine-tuning argument like 
basically the idea as i understand it is like you have all these like physical like laws and constants and things that if they were even just a little bit different then the universe that we have would not exist but like no one has ever shown any evidence that i'm aware of that any of those things can be different it's not like we have a dial and they're adjusted to just the right number like we've never well, seen any evidence that they are ever anything different well that's the whole point that's why i think they push the multiverse because they're saying it has it, it's so fine-tuned that it has to be different elsewhere and that's why there's all these multiple different universes with multiple different like the fact that it's all so fine-tuned and all lined up and well, so but perfectly. for it to be fine-tuned it has to be possible for it to be different oh yeah i agree i don't think it is possible i think that's what's so amazing about our god so, I, but if there's the no evidence them use with the multiverse so if I, there's no evidence that any of these I agree. physical yeah. constants or laws could be any different like we've never seen any evidence that shows yeah. that they could be any different that's what's so, so how amazing. is that fine-tuning then well that's what i mean to me that's what's so amazing about it right is that the, the laws are already defined they're constant you can't change them i absolutely yeah. agree but see in order for them to explain that all those laws line up perfectly and everything work just right for us to be here and all these other things that's why they come out with the multiverse and talk about that. Now, but I'm not like, saying but you like believe without it, invoking but... a multiverse, just how could it possibly be different? That's what I don't get. I don't think it. I, see, I uh, may it, I may add on to this. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, buddy. Okay, um, I think I understand where uh, where you're coming from when you say uh, that we are all it's all fine uh, fine tuned like to to unimaginable. Uh, degree Levels, yeah. uh, and and it's actually one of the things that i find uh, to be one of the greatest testimonies to the existence of some intelligence um, me too yeah. in, in my personal belief it's a christian god but i think that really other religions are not far off because yeah, any... they believe believe in some sort of creator uh, when it's, you it's when you come yeah when you come to examine the nature around you uh, without prejudice, like that, it only uh, a material uh, view. Random. You chance. you can allow for such uh, for such possibility, and yeah. I believe that if even if um, I believe that that actually justifies why uh, the people uh, like even like it would justify the people in evolutionary view that they saw like the things around them and actually saw how complex they were they couldn't explain some things and therefore thought to themselves that okay uh, there must be some sort of higher intelligence that designed this and i think that this is not this first impulse i would say is uh, it if it's even if it's wrong it's not uh, illogical like when you look for example uh on on the complexity of a single cell organism mm -hmm. um more complex like even even for like any life form to have been possibly uh created you have so many requirements i myself am a programmer and and uh, i have been through like um designing some systems like when you try to create a website there's a lot that goes into it there's mm -hmm. like for example databases there's 
front-end, back-end, and within them there are a lot of complex systems that if one doesn't work, the whole thing doesn't work at all. Well, and, uh, go ahead, finish, and then I'll and, play. Yeah, and this is what I see when I examine also the, the cell, and I recently had fun just trying to to like uh, come up with this like list of requirements if I was like this kind of being or like if I was to create a, a, the most primitive form of life possible, what requirements would they would it have to have in order for it to be considered life basically? Okay, so this is like sort of like the argument of irreducible complexity. Mm -hmm. um, where like you kind of defined an irreducibly complex system where you have a system of more than like two or more inner working parts. And if you remove only one of those parts, the system ceases to function. Um, so I would just say that those ir irreducibly complex systems can evolve. Um, we have direct evidence of this. We've watched irreducibly complex systems evolve, like a system that meets all the requirements of irreducibly complex, of irreducible complexity, right? It's like, um, the specific example I'm thinking of is in um, HIV. There's a type of protein that involved like um, for this kind of HIV to infect humans, it had to develop this irreducibly complex system. Well, so it uh, had to have a system of four parts where yeah. if any one of those four parts doesn't work, then the system doesn't work. Well, and but it had to evolve uh, those may, four may parts. May I just correct? Uh, no, no, a uh, guys, 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 listen. You're asking extremely complex I questions. <laughs> Give the man. There's one non-believer in here who's basically defending himself. Give yeah. him the opportunity to respond, whether you agree with it or not. Let him finish the statement, and then you tear into him. All right? Come on, people. <laughs> Which hey. I want to play the um, advocate, so I'll let him finish, too. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to make the point that irreducible complex things can evolve, and we've seen irreducibly complex things evolve. So I don't think by it of its... Uh, by itself, I don't think that irreducible complexity is like some kind of hurdle that evolution just cannot explain. That was my first point. My, my second point was just going to be like, um, if you're trying to think about what is the very minimal requirements that like life could have, and you're like listing all these things of like modern day cells, I, I think that you're kind of missing the possibilities of like proto cells or even before that, just self-replicating chemical systems, um, which would have different necessary things than like an entirely like living cell. I don't think that like, like the calculation that you're talking about, listing out all the things that are necessary for the most basic form of life, like a cell, um, that would imply like you're doing the calculations of like, what are the odds of all these parts just coming together randomly and forming a cell? Which is, I don't think any, like, that's not the model of abiogenesis. Uh, may I respond to that? Okay. Uh, so I'm not talking about like modern cells since mm -hmm. even based on evolutionary theory, like you wouldn't have this, the, the same cell that would be in the beginning, like today it would have transformed over time and died off since it was the weakest basically thing. Uh, modern cells based on ev uh, modern single cellular organisms would be, uh, would be too advanced f to be like the first life form, right? Yeah. But if you, if you like try and list the specific things like the very minimalistic requirements as if you were to like 
uh, okay, you have this chemical soup, uh, or I, I call it a soup, but a chemical mixture, basically, uh, where uh, you you supposedly you have all the necessary ingredients for such life. So like by the ideal conditions, what would such thing require? And like if it was just like one system, I could argue, like I could agree that okay, this is there's a relatively high chance for it to be right. Yeah. So if you only uh, if you only give it like the minimalistic thing, okay. So in order for this life form to to exist, it has to have like some sort of a shell, a containment, mm -hmm. or it could probably be a pool as well. But okay. it has to be isolated. Yes. Uh, environment. So, so that can I respond one. with what I would think would be the very first necessary thing? Yeah, sure. go ahead. Um, so the first thing that you need is like a, um, in order for you to have any like natural selection or any kind of evolution even possible to increase complexity over generations, you need a self-replicating system. So that's where we would have to start is like, what is the simplest form of self-replicating system that is possible like to happen naturally from like a mixture of chemicals. Um, and there's two main models that I think like, my favorite is the amyloid world hypothesis. And then the one that I think is probably one of the more common ones these days is uh, metabolism first. So in the, the, the metabolism first, like a sort of metabolic system of chemical pathways would have been the first self-replicating thing, right? Um, in the amyloid world that I really like, um, just because I think that it answers a lot of these questions in a way that logically makes sense to me and I think has some experimental validation for, is um, like amyloids are kind of a niche term, but what they are basically are like proteins, but they're like the sequence doesn't really matter as much. Like you can have a bunch of different sequences and they form amyloids. They're basically like, like, like amyloids form naturally, like in your brain as like plaque, like in like Alzheimer's patients, a lot of the times in their brains, they have a lot of amyloid plaque buildup, but oh these amyloids are basically just like proteins will come together and naturally form amyloids, um, which are a protein, but they have a distinct structure where like they kind of form these little sheets and like the she the sheets will be crinkled in a way that um, it's not really dependent on the exact sequence like it kind of depends on the overall composition of like if they have the overall composition right they'll form into these sheets um so a lot of different amino acid combinations can produce this like just one type of amino acid you could form an amyloid sheet with it or you could take you know four or five or ten different kinds of amino acids and mix them together randomly and you could form amyloid sheets so these things kind of form without you needing to have the exact um, the exact combination exactly right in the same sequence. And the cool thing about these amyloids is that they kind of perform, like become like templates. So once you have like an amyloid sheet, more amyloid, like, like it will naturally like extend, right? It, like when amino acids come in contact with it, they will add on and start growing this sheet. And then once it reaches a certain length, it, like the physical characteristics are going to cause it to break. And then you have two amyloids and those amyloids will continue to ex extend. And you can have the actual amyloid kind of catalyzing its own reaction in a way that actually selects only left-handed or right-handed. Like if you have a left-handed sheet, right-handed amino acids are going to hit it and bounce right off and they're not going to extend the, the amyloid. But left-handed ones will. 
So suddenly you start to show like, this is why life is only left-handed. Like this is why um, like the actual like information from the environment can actually be sort of um, like that information from the environment can be shown as impacting the, the amyloid, like the, the actual like sequence of the amino acids, which can have a difference. Like you can have robust amyloid. Sorry if this is taking really long, but I just want to get this last point off. Yeah. Um, so you have this sort of like, like amyloids can encode for information. And we see this in living cells now with like prions. Um, but like amyloids and proteins can encode information that doesn't rely on DNA or genetics. That is like, you can pass from one generation to the next just with this amyloid based protein system. So the only thing that's required beforehand for this would be like amino acids. Well, I, I'm glad that you actually mentioned left and right handed because that was one thing I was thinking about is that left and right handed actually kill it. They cancel each other out. Like, so if they don't, I mean, what makes them, you said after they're formed, then they bounce off. And I mean, what makes them get to that point in the first place? And not that I'm disagreeing with that. Right. I mean, yeah. there is, I mean, even though the chance statistically is even you have to agree it's very minimal and then that reproducing and reproducing and then finding then it gets to the point of complexity which then finds a partner of a point of complexity and that partner finds that partner and then i mean and this has to happen billions trillions i mean quadrillions times you know to get to and and this is kind of where for me it's like this is where i believe in intelligent design i mean when you look at a world and you see how complex things are and everything is lined up this is where i, I mean i don't I don't do the Kent Hovind thing where I bash people and, oh, I can't believe you believe in evolution and you're stupid. And I mean, I, I do, obviously, all these scientists, all these people, they wouldn't study this stuff and find ways to believe if it was stupid, right? I mean, I just feel personally myself, I mean, like he, he, he was talking about earlier with coding and complexity and all of that stuff, right? I mean, man, when you look at, at the DNA of even basic life forms and even, even you know, the older life, I mean, the chance that they copy each other and break off and then reproduce and then and then that has to transcend again and again and again and and that everything has to be so perfect and so right i mean sunlight i mean x-rays i mean so many different things can kill it the the, the ph level in the water i mean electricity it's astronomical yeah can that take you like, a, like an argument for right. incredulity like you can't see how this would come about in a naturalistic way no no no, no no i just no 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 i i can see how it could i just think for me, it makes more sense that there's intelligent design. And I would also kind of push back and challenge a little bit some of the, like you were saying, like the, the odds, the statistics, the mathematical probabilities. I don't really think that like you're, you, I, I, well, first of all, I don't think that you've calculated those things, but like, I think you have an intuitive sense that they would be a low probability, but I question that. I don't know what actual, like what numbers you're crunching to get the mathematical well, probabilities of this, but I have seen experiments where they form amino like amyloids with basic am amino acid building blocks, um, like in water, and you know they, they form amyloids every single time, um, and amyloids just have the property of like once the like once you have an amyloid, like amino acids will naturally add to it, and it will like naturally extend as long as the amino acids are available to like come in contact with it but you agree and, the left and right yes yeah, so the left and right the right. the amyloid the, the the sheet formation like in order for it to form the sheet you can't get that with a mixture of left and right 
So yeah. like that, that formation is only possible. Like, like a, a left hand or a right hand yeah. is not going to fit into that sequence and it's not going to extend along with mm -hmm. left and right handed. So it, it's not going to form in the first place. Um, like, <laughs> like the, the actual form itself only forms with like, only left-handed or only right-handed. So once you have like, if you're starting with just a mixture of right and left-handed, if a left and a right-handed one come together, then um, that's not gonna create an amyloid sheet. And so eventually like, you know, I mean, that's probably not gonna polymerize very easily anyway, but like you're going to form amyloid sheets whenever the left-handed and the left-handed ones come together. So that, but in oh, nature, the probability is not very low of that uh, happening. Like a couple of questions about nature, but yeah. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. Uh, before the hit, your cue is not in the middle of the sentences. Let him finish his statement, and then ask him whatever you like or discuss. Please. I want guests to feel comfortable, like they can actually participate in the conversation. You understand, guys? Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, sorry if I interrupt. Uh, um, I hope uh, I don't interrupt too much, but I'm kind of curious um, how uh, you mentioned amyloids. I'm not very familiar with this uh, term, but how exactly are they different from a crystal that basically also forms in these uh, patterns? Uh, how, how would a crystal not be considered a life form? Okay, so oh. it's a really interesting question. I know... Um, I've actually heard people discussing the fact that DNA would classify as a crystal in like one dimension. Um, so I'm not sure whether or not amyloids would classify and meet the criteria of a crystal. But I mean, on the one hand, it's not like they are uh, like formed of minerals, like they're formed of organic molecules, they're formed out of amino acids. So I, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable enough with saying that they're definitely not crystals, but the, the fact that they're organic molecules um, kind of shows to me that they're not really crystals, but also like they do have a, a, a repetitive pattern in three to three dimensional space. Like they are forming these, these sheets that have like these crinkles in them. And like, there is an actual like repetitive repeating form in the amino acid, like the, the protein backbones. So I don't know if you want to call them a crystal or not. It, I don't, I don't know if it really matters that much. Okay. And the second one is um, how do you go from this structure? If, if presumably that is the structure that would, would be the first one to uh, an organism that has DNA since uh, why I ask this question is because every living thing that we know of uh, today is uh it contains dna it's based on dna uh, and uh and this dna molecule uh basically keeps the instructions for building this the cell and uh, i also don't know any other forms that don't have a cell structure so every single living organism uh has cell structures probably viruses would be yeah they still they still could be considered a cell i guess they Some wouldn't don't. be considered a cell, no. Yeah, well, they, they don't, don't have, have a cell nucleus. membrane. Yeah, a virus is just like a, a protein encapsulating the the genetic material. All right. Yeah, but viruses uh, they can't function without cell either. 
So basically yeah. everything that lives today requires. Yeah, so I agree with you that we yeah. have to get from these basic um, chemical replicators and we have to get to uh, like a basic proto cell. So we would need uh, an explanation for like the development of a cellular membrane, um, which I think, you know, lipids naturally form into lipid bilayers and, and, and different spheres like that naturally. So I think that that is fine. But in terms of your question with the DNA, this is one of the biggest questions in all of origin of life research is the origin of the genetic code. Um, there are some hypotheses that I've seen, but I haven't seen a lot that relates specifically to amyloids. Um, but one of the, the pieces of information that I think is going to be critical in our understanding of this, because I don't think that we do have like, there's no consensus hypothesis even for how this happened. Um, but one of the threads of information that I think is really important is, um, do you know what ATP? Um, Not really, please explain. So it's basically like all of your food that you eat is converted to ATP. ATP or, you know, a similar molecule. ATP is like the currency of the body. So all of the energy that your body uses is in the form of ATP or uh, analogous molecule to ATP. ATP is the main one. So it's a molecule, right? Yes, it's like a molecule. Okay. Um, and all of the energy and all of the food that you eat is converted to ATP. That's the, the form of currency that the cell ultimately uses to do work and to expend energy. It all has to come from ATP. And there's something very interesting about ATP is that it's basically, um, you know, how DNA is composed of four letters, A, C, T, and G, right? Yep. ATP is basically that A. So it's like the first letter of the DNA code. And it's used for almost every process in, in the cell. It's used as a form of energy storage. So you can store energy in ATP that you can then use later. It's like a currency. So I think that this is very key because with ATP, you have like, like almost you have the first building block for DNA. Like you're very, very close. So this chemical that is primarily used for almost every single biological process is so close to being the first letter of DNA. Like you can just add ATPs together and you almost get like a piece of, of, of single stranded DNA. So it's, I think that that is going to be the key to figuring out how we transitioned from like a genetic information that was like before DNA and it was maybe coded within proteins to uh, transitioning that, that information storage to DNA. I think that the interactions with ATP are probably going to be like the key for that. But again, we don't have... Um, like a, a really good like model at the moment. So a uh, question like this, if you don't have uh, this model mm -hmm. uh, that is universally explained, although you do have theories, um, do you still consider them enough for you to believe that as a fact, or you still have to have some sort of belief that uh, like, like you, it has, it has to require some faith, uh, really, don't you think? Yes. Um, no, I wouldn't necessarily say that because like, and I would say that we don't have the theories. Like you said, we have some theories. I mean, we don't, 
we have hypotheses. We don't even have theories of abiogenesis at this point. Um, but it, like saying that I don't know what the mechanism is does not mean that I have to have faith that one of the mechanisms is the mechanism. Like I can say I don't know the mechanism, but I still know that abiogenesis happened. Um, and that's because we know that at the there, at one point in the universe, there was no life in the universe. Like it was too hot. The energy density was too high. Life, like not even atoms could exist. So I know looking at the cosmic microwave background that there was a point in the universe where there was no life. And I know now there is life. So that means that at one point, life had to come from non-life. Now the creationist model has that being done by God, but they still have a point where life comes from non-life. It's just that God does it. So I know that at one point, abiogenesis had to have happened somehow, some way, by some mechanism. But I don't know what that mechanism is. But I don't have faith in any one mechanism or the other. Does well, that make sense? I, yeah. uh, I, I like the way you, uh, you word that. You kind of put God and then uh, the concept of life into the same, the same bracket. But you know, by definition, God would be a living being, an entity that is conscious of his design, as where you're saying natural processes. In the beginning of the conversation, you actually sounded as though you agree with a form of spontaneous generation that living things can come out of inanimate objects. Um, and Grayson, can I add to that actually? Sure. Um, well, hold on. Let it, yep. let him respond to the question first. Yep. We, I don't, I don't want to do a shotgun effect where he's got to answer like three different things at once. I know he enjoys <laughs> himself, but come on. Yeah. So, just to really quickly respond to that, I, I don't know if I would necessarily agree with the spontaneous generation because I'm not really saying that like like there's such a gradation of a gray area in between life and non-life that I don't know where you would like, I think it's kind of an arbitrary assignment to say, okay, this step is definitely not life, but this very next step is definitely life. Um, so I think that there's just so much gray area between life and non-life that I don't think spontaneous generation of like all of a sudden just boom, you got a living thing out of a non-living thing. I don't think it's like, that simple of like a zero to 100 process when i get a chance can i say something whoever well, sure. after after rob rob said that he wanted yep. to ask yep. a question i want to keep it in turns and then you guys go i do yeah. want to let everybody know we're going on three hours and 32 minutes <laughs> i usually keep it at two but you guys are just awesome sauce so what i'm going to do is we'll go for another 30 minutes because unfortunately i share the room with my wife and she does <laughs> got to get up in the morning so sure. 30 minutes we'll do this now, please make sure you uh, check out the scheduled shows, Grayson. We like having you, as well as Nicholas, yeah. Ernest, Adam, Rob. Go ahead, ask your question. Um, yeah, I'd like to carry on uh, Brett's, um, you know, uh, question to you. Life from non-life. Um, another scientific possible theory is directed panspermia, where obviously there was alien life that seeded that life from, from non-life would you consider that intelligence as giving rise to life um i don't know if panspermia is necessarily like intelligence i mean you could have um like there are so many different forms of of a, a panspermia model like one form would just be 
like a single celled microbe hitched a ride on an asteroid and, and, and traveled to earth that way. And I don't think that that would be intelligent. Yeah. So. It's directed spam, panspermia, though. directed panspermia, which is specific. It's not, it's not just panspermia. It's called directed panspermia okay. as though it was done as a deliberate act. The okay. fact that aliens cannot reach this planet and therefore seeded it by another mechanism or whatever. Well, if by definition guided panspermia would involve like, um, like an intelligent like guide for it, then sure, like I would acknowledge, acknowledge that. Okay. Yeah. The other thing, just one last point, I'd what you were saying about um, uh, the complexity argument earlier. The um, I would actually call it more interdependence and regarding all of the organs of the body. So not only are the organs of the body interdependent with each other, in other words, they have their own dedicated function, so they have a, an independent function, but are also dependent on other organs in the body. But there's another third mechanism to this, is that the body has backup mechanisms, like, for example, the gallbladder, the pancreas, and the liver. So if you have your gallbladder removed, the liver has a backup capability to produce the extra bowel needed to um allow the um the life form to survive so there's backup mechanisms as well as the interdependence of of organs and cells as well of course yeah yeah so we've observed like these kind of interdependent systems evolve i mean we've we've seen them be the result of mutation we have yeah so the the one example um that is like very simple to illustrate this and like the, the evolutionary change happened just within a few days was with this uh, chlamydomotis it's this type of single-celled algae that they introduced predators into the system and a mutation happened in some of the lineages of the algae that caused them to become multicellular and they actually differentiated into uh, body cells that would like they would um can like send this connective tissue out almost like this uh, extracellular matrix material out that would bind them together into one body and all of them would be infertile except for the replicator cells so they're like the sexual organ of the new multicellular organism and so their existence is dependent on the body cells because they're just dead meat if they're just you know they they're not even um like they don't have any defenses except for these body cells that are clumping together to protect them from predators. But the body cells can't reproduce without the reproducing cells. So they're interdependent on each other. And we saw that evolve like totally on its own in, in a lab. All they did was introduce predators and a single cell like evolved into have these having these differentiated roles within a multicellular organism. So this isn't as a as a colony or, or collective, this deliberately mutated and that's yeah. so what it's rise. not a colony because so in a colony you don't have the kind of differentiation like every single cell within a colony is reproducing and then within the colony every cell is competing with the other cells in the colony for resources but in the chlamydomonas experiment um they were not competing with the other cells in the body for resources. Like the resources were shared among the group. And like I said, not every cell was reproducing. Only the reproducing cells 
um, were capable of reproduction. And the other, the body cells were no longer capable of surviving on their own. They didn't have the mobility of a single cell. So they would just die if they were disconnected from the colony because they wouldn't be able to move around and get energy, get food. Uh, could you reference this experiment? Yeah. Um, if you search chlamydomotis, uh, de novo multicellularity, um, maybe if you just let me let me try to see if this comes up. De novo multi. Okay, yeah, here we go. The, the title of the paper is De Novo Origins of Multicellularity in Response to Predation. Let me just maybe link it in the side chat. But it's from 2018. Um, I think it's it, it's a pretty neat paper because, like I said, the only change that they introduced was they introduced predators into this, like, laboratory setup. And, like, just not every single line of chlamydomotis evolved this mutation to be able to behave this way. But some of the lines did we're down to 339 right now just to let you all know i uh, my question for you is do you believe that logic and rationality can only happen as a result of a mind um hmm. i have no idea how to answer that because like logic and rationality are things that ultimately only happen within minds right um like the universe itself is not inherently logical um like the the only logic happens within like uh like minds or within yeah I, I don't know i guess i don't know how to answer that question do you believe that your existence in the universe is mathematically logical and rational no it's random that's what you mm. think yeah well, I thought whoever just said that, I thought you were stating that the universe had order and systems on top of systems. Have you changed your mind already? Nope. Okay. Well, wouldn't that take some form of logic and rationality to it, Ernest? Uh, sorry, can you, can you repeat the question? Well, I'm asking Mr. Grayson if he believes that the oh, universe... I has any logic or rationality to it, some form of order. I would more so think that logic and rationality are things that we use to describe the universe around us. Like, similar to how math, we, we created math in order to describe things that were happening in reality. So they're like, they're descriptive constructs rather than being like inherent or prescriptive in the universe. So it is believed that uh, you could actually perceive the universe in a mathematical equation. Um, could I perceive the universe? I don't think I could perceive that, but I think like you could summarize the universe in like a mathematical equation. But you do agree that logic and rationality simply can't exist or work unless a mind is involved with it. Um, see, this is interesting because of like, I don't know enough about computers or code or AI to really know whether or not they could like have logic and reasoning without having a mind. So I don't know. Well, you do know that if you were to, you do believe that if you went to a graveyard and tried to have a conversation with someone or something that is dead, you're not going to get any logic and rationality out of it. Right? Yeah. 
but you would expect that you would get some form of logic and rationality out of something living with a mind, right? I would assume so, but... <laughs> you know where I'm going with that, right? Yeah, okay. I, I think so, but I mean, also, like, I could also assume that I would get some kind of logic and rationality out of, like, a, a computer or an AI. But all these things that you would expect to get logic and rationality of would be designed by a mind, right? Not necessarily. I mean, I, I, I think that an AI or a computer could, like, be designed without a human. Well, remember you and I were talking earlier about destroying a bunch of personal property of super advanced computers, and you told me at the end of it we wouldn't be able to get a, a Game Boy, an 8-bit machine, out of all that parts and material and all that. Yeah. Unless we were to systematically put it all together, but that would require a mind, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you had a, a computer or like a robot that was putting it all back together... And it or it put it back together in a new order, like right, like say you smash a computer and then a robot over here puts it back together in a way that it was not pre-programmed to, but it it like puts it back together in a novel way. So then you would have logic and rationality existing in a way that no human mind designed. Do you exist due to logic and rationality? I I don't think so. I don't know. There was no rational, logical construction whatsoever. Um, I don't think that it's like the a reason why I exist. Um, I don't know. That's a pretty hardcore existential question. I I don't really. I mean, I have to think about it. I guess more to say anything with confidence. Well, you believe that there's some form of system overlapping whenever it comes to reproduction, right? We were talking about self-replicating. Oh, it's a system overlapping? What do you mean? Well, there's a system in place in order for life to come into existence. Do you agree? Yeah. Like the, the system would be like chemistry. Would you suspect that you would come into existence if you didn't have a life form with a mind creating you? Yeah. You believe that you could come into existence without a life form or a parent? Well, I believe that I did come to existence without ever any, like, conscious designer designing me. All right, but you do believe that you have a mom and dad, and they do know that there's a system in place that they would have had to interact with in order to create you, right? Um, yeah, I suppose so. Like, a, rep a reproduction, genetics, all that kind of stuff. All right, fair enough. So with anything logical, anything with rationality, and anything with performing the existence of life, there has to be some life involved in it in order for the logic and rationality to work. Say so we're on the same page, it looks like. Yeah. There has to, I don't know, you kind of lost me on that page. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, it, it, is, it is rough, it is rough. But just think later on when you get a chance and you're just chilling out, doing whatever you do as a hobby, just think about what I threw at you and then see if that makes sense for you or just go back and listen to it. Yeah, I'll, I'll re-listen to this, I guess. But I, I guess I don't really, um, I kind of would understand like logic and rationality as being like constructs within a mind. So I wouldn't think that they would exist in the universe without a mind. 
Well, you do believe, obviously, that things can't even be defined in the first place if you don't have a rational mind to argue it in the mind. Yep. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, sure. I mean, if there's, it's like a, if the tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to observe it, doesn't make a sound, kind of an argument. Have you, one last question for you, and then we got like 15 minutes. Has, uh, have you ever observed any life form or sentience come out of an inanimate object or something that would be defined as dead or non-living? No, I've never observed spontaneous uh, generation, although they did, I think just last August, they did bring back pig cells from death. So they have reanimated uh, dead cells to come back to life. So they've done that before, but... I was not in that lab to directly observe it. Oh, I wouldn't have a problem with believing that that's possible. But what I find interesting about it is you would have to agree that it required a logical, rational mind to even make an experiment like that work, correct? Intelligence. Okay, yeah. It couldn't have just, you couldn't just open up a lab, sit some crap in there, and all of a sudden it it starts turning into something that can make love ballads, right? <laughs> sure. So that's the reason why a lot of theists have issue with evolution, because that's basically <laughs> what's being said. Are, are you following where we're coming from now? Why it is we believe that the concept of a higher power, intelligence, or a superior mind may have been involved? Um, I can kind of see like the rhet- the rhetorical uh, aspects for where you're coming from, but I think that we can observe complex things um, being created without any kind of mind or designer behind them, like, um, you know, snowflakes, crystals, um, lipid (laughs) bubbles, like all these things are forming complex structures. um, And the only thing that's acting on them is the surrounding molecules. And we're just questioning the system. We're wondering how it's going about doing this. Pretty much we're in the same boat with you, just trying to figure out things as we go along. If anybody else has some more questions or topics, remember we're at 348. I just want to warn you guys so it just doesn't shock you when the end intro or outro happens and all that. Grayson, again, it's been fantastic having you, and I hope that you continue to join the shows. I try to open up a couple a week and all that. Love to have you. And also one other thing, anybody that's actually involved in the live show, You have my full permission, you're hearing this publicly on the recording, you have my full permission to copy the show and do with it as you want, as long as you don't cut it up and take us out of context. Don't do that to the atheists nor the religious folks. Thank you. Um, I've been waiting patiently. So I guess where where my my question comes in is I was taught uh, in, in school that that abiogenesis, all that stuff, it it was true, that we knew it would happen. I mean, I I went and so I I moved from a Blue Ribbon School in Niceville, Florida to California, and I had to retake a physics class. And the first thing the teacher said to me is, all of you are stardust, every last one of you, you know, and I I will say one thing I respect about you, Grayson, is you, you have been saying, well, it's a theory This is what we think, you know, but that's generally that's not what's taught, especially in the high schools, the middle schools. You know, it's taught as a fact. It's taught as we know this. It's not, you know, they say it's a theory, but it's a theory that we've proven that we know. And I guess that's where my struggle, I guess, comes in with it. Because, man, if people were coming forward like you are and saying, yeah, I mean, you know, there's chance, there's this. And if they taught it that way, I I could see that. You know, I guess my problem has always been 
when they teach it as a fact. I mean, would you disagree with that or, or think, yeah, that shouldn't be taught that way? I mean, I guess that's my question for you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember when I was taught abiogenesis in high school. I don't really remember freshman so biology that I, much, but I remember um, learning about abiogenesis in college, at least. And I definitely don't remember them teaching it like it was a fact. I mean, I remember learning of the RNA world hypothesis. And I remember like them I mean, being pretty upfront in my textbook about if like, I what they didn't know and the fact that these are just hypotheses and um obviously there is a difference between like a colloquial use of the word theory and a scientific use of the word word theory like it has to have evidence to support it to be a theory it's got a yeah. you know it's a little bit more sophisticated than just a hypothesis but um yeah if you were taught that way you know i i would probably say that that's probably not the best approach um i, I think that we should be intellectually honest in the way that we communicate the science and like not claim things are absolutely known if they're not well all right I mean, gentlemen can you do me a favor because we are running short on time can you all plug your youtube channels and while plugging it give a summary of what we should find if we come to your channel okay well i guess i'll start um yeah so grayson uh is my name my channel is based theory so based like that's so based or based is the opposite of cringe. Um, and then I have a lot of debates with creationists. I've got some after shows kind of like this, where everyone is just kind of welcome to join and discuss these kinds of topics. Um, I want to start getting more into maybe like some more short form uh, video styles where I just kind of talk about a subject that I think is really cool and interesting. So trying to do some more of those channel videos, but I don't have any on the channel just yet. Mr. Rob. Um, yeah, I'm going to start doing some short videos myself, but I'm obviously trying to get my mic and stuff sorted out. But yeah, can you quickly, you said your, your uh, laptop was uh, a Mac and it's your mic from that, isn't it? You were saying, so it's not a specific mic you've got. Yeah. Yeah. It's just my MacBook air, the, both the webcam and the microphone. Yeah, cool. Okay, yeah. But but that's what I want to do, do some short videos and things like that. So I'll be starting that very soon. Adam, do you have a, uh, you want to give people the link or are you concerned that there might be some, uh, some brain dead uh, monsters coming over there? It's up to you. Yeah, I'll go with the brain dead monsters on that. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand. Ernest, you got a YouTube channel as well as Nick? I don't really have a YouTube channel, but I would like to join you for for maybe another time. I really enjoyed that. Sounds good. Ernest, I think that you've got some interesting questions and topics. You might want to actually uh, consider doing some videos and subject matters. Nicholas, what you got for us? What do we got? I, I've been thinking about it for a while. Actually, I'd like to do a chat with you sometime, Grayson. I mean, I, I, I respect how kind you've been and, and uh forward and i really would like to dive into it with you man i i've done a lot of years in college and studying evolution and all that stuff and like i said i'm not uh anti it i, I do feel in the end it's something that we believe you know i mean it, where it's taught as a science as a truth 
And I'd love to discuss that with you sometime. So I'll try to get a hold of you. Um, I mean, if you can send me your email or channel or something, or um, that would so be. So my email is actually on on my channel page in the about section. You should be able to find my email. You just kind of have to verify you're not a robot. Yeah. What's your uh, What's your channel? Uh, based theory. Um, I think uh, it's linked it a few times, but if you just search like based theory after show, I should come up to show the channel just based theory. And then, yeah, the email, I think, is just uh, criticalbasedinquiries at gmail.com. Unfortunately, whenever we live broadcast, I am not capable of being able. YouTube doesn't allow me to leave something in the comment right under the video. All I can do is description and what's going on in the feed. As soon as the video processes, I will put this man's link in the comments and pin it so people can go over and harass him on a daily basis like what's done for us. Right? more thing brett thanks for uh doing this and it was really good and being so respectful to grayson and uh, i look forward to doing it again thanks brett well nicholas if you go to the front of my channel you'll see that i got scheduled shows set up gives you the time you can click notification and it'll tell you hey the show's about to start 30 minutes in advance and you can prepare yourself nicholas i've always enjoyed having you on the show you and your wife are good people you all of you are welcome to come in All right. Well, I enjoyed it and I'll be back again. Trust me. God bless.